0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
1: You're the only ones left. They've taken over the Earth, town by town,
0: city by city, killing and devouring everything in their path. Ravenous invaders controlled by a terror from space
1: have been commanded to turn the Earth into a graveyard. But why? 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 Something
2: out there is about to experiment on us.
1: And they're going to use the world's lowliest creatures as their weapons.
3: Ah! Phase 4 in technical. from Paramount Pictures. Rated PG, Pareto Guidance suggested. Phase 4.
4: Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Rob St. Mary is on assignment in Borneo, being a wild man. Instead, this week I am joined by our old friend, Josh Hadley. Did you just call me old? Yes. Because, Mike, if there's an intelligence out there, I want them to know there's an intelligence in here. I hope that we have some sort of intelligent conversation on this episode. I'm sure that we will because we also have cinephile Robert Hubbard along for the ride. We're not talking about those ads. This week, we're talking about Phase 4, the 1974 film from visual designer-turned-filmmaker Saul Bass. Best known for his title sequences, poster designs, and logos... Bass made a handful of short films over the years, and this was his lone feature. As we've talked about a bit on the show before the 1970s were lousy with killer animal and insect movies, Neda the Laipu, Kingdom of the Spiders, Empire of the Ants, to name a few. Phase 4 shares a few strands of DNA with those exploitation films. It's also kind of a hybrid of nature documentaries, personal drama, and good solid science fiction. So Josh, when was the first time you saw Phase 4, and what did you think?
0: I hate to do this, Mike, but every single time we do one of these cult movies from the 70s, my answer is almost the same, and it's always the truth. Late night UHF television in the early 80s. I caught this on some UHF channel in, like, 82, 83. I had no idea what I was seeing. And at the time, I didn't like it because it's a very slow movie. But to an 8-year-old, this is not a good movie, you know? (laughs) But I saw it on late-night UHF TV, just like The Visitor and so many other movies we've discussed in the past.
2: I first saw it, very first broadcast on uh, network television, which must have been, like, uh, 78, 79 read about the film cut in a, in a couple of the books at the time I think um, or was it Future Tense by John Brosnan It had been mentioned and I had also picked up the novelization so I knew about the movie. It was the first time to see it then. A lot of it went over my head at the time uh, but I remember uh, really liking the visual style. since I was a soundtrack geek I also taped the broadcast on my grandmother's uh, cassette player. So I think for a few years, I actually had like a cassette copy of the whole movie. So (laughs)
4: I'm one of those soundtrack geeks. Yes. (laughs) I used to record old Sha Na Na episodes on my (laughs) recorder. I don't know why. I guess I just couldn't have enough Bowser in my life.
0: I got to quote Homer Simpson here.
4: I think I saw Phase 4, I want to say sometime in the early 2000s. I definitely came to this movie a lot later than I should have. And I don't even remember why I ended up watching this, other than probably because of the mystique of this was Saul Bass's only feature film. Being somewhat of a cinephile, I... I'm a a fan of Bass, also being uh, involved a little bit with graphic design. I'm a fan of his logos and everything and his poster design. And I was looking up some of his logos earlier today, and I would say that probably if you are listening to this podcast, you probably have at least one Saul Bass designed logo in your house, if not in your living room right now looking at some of the things that he's designed I mean some some of the more iconic things that he did were like the bell for Ma Bell or the the globe for at and those kind of things but things like the original um, Girl Scout logo, the United Way logo, uh, the Warner Brothers W like the three uh, kind of oblong uh, shapes with the, the the smaller one being the third part of the W, Exxon, Kleenex, ABC, UPS, uh, IBM logo. I mean, just so many things he had his his hands on that is just unbelievable. Uh, Lowry's, you know, go in your pantry right now and I bet you have something that he designed. And even like the original Dixie Cup logo he designed and and the old Quaker Oats. So uh, pretty incredible. And then to look at the title sequences that he designed. I mean, if you've listened to the projection booth at all, we've talked about so many of the movies that he had his fingers in when it came to title designs. I mean, you know, we talked about seconds a few years ago, but even things like, of course, casino psycho, uh, he worked a lot with Preminger. So bunny Lake is missing Rosebud, those kind of things. And apparently even did some of the title work on alien though. uh, it's, uncredited work so he uh, had done so much great work and then he had done a couple short films and we could talk about those a little bit later because they definitely play into what we see in phase four because the the use of montage is just absolutely gorgeous and absolutely.
0: Uh, it's fascinating no yeah it uses it. but i also want to throw out i showed this one to you mike you might remember this one rob that the Sixth Sense TV series from 1972, the Gary Collins one, he's not yeah. credited on that. But you watched that intro sequence, and Mike, you absolutely saw how that reminded me so much of Saul Bass in Phase 4, didn't you? Oh, yeah. How, I don't know who made that, but I swear that was a Saul Bass intro for the 1972 Sixth Sense series. So I just wanted to point that out that he may be uncredited on that too because that re- that's got it. It's Saul Bass influence at least.
2: I will say, before I saw the movie, I only had, like, at the time, I really only had a middling idea. I'd heard the name. I really wasn't aware of who he was, although at the time, i have seen a lot of the movies and kind of, like, discovering, like, his work, like, through the title sequences of so many films. Like, the, I think, what was the first one? I think was uh, Primingers, The Man with the Golden Arm, The Big Country, I mean, so many films, and then... Going to the corporate logos, I would say that pretty much over the 20th century, he's probably like I guess his work is just all over the place. I mean,
4: it is pretty much late 20th century more than just what he did the influence that he had i mean i'm sure that all three of us remember when spike lee's clockers came out and got slapped with the lawsuit because it was the poster design was such a ripoff of the anatomy of a murder design and some of these images that he created just through the posters were so iconic which is really kind of a horribly sad thing when you look at the poster for phase four, which I could see completely turning off so many people. If I saw phase four on a, a VHS tape uh, at the video store, there's no way in hell I would have rented it because that image, that kind of Unshen Andalu esque image of the ants coming out of this guy's hand, this disembodied hand and the ants over on the side, one of the ugliest posters I've seen in a long time and definitely not a Saul Bass design, which is really kind of a shame because I can't even imagine what he would have done when it came to a design for his own movie. And instead he gets stuck with this horrible exploitation type poster.
0: I mean, I agree with you, but I disagree with you. I like that poster because it is, it's misselling the movie, but it's misselling it as a pure empire of the ants kind of, day of the animals exploitation movie and that's not what this film is this film is a film critic friend of mine put it perfectly one of the purest science fiction ideas he's ever seen to come out of the 70s
4: i want to know robert when you saw this thing on tv when you were a little kid taping this with a tape recorder off of television i know josh said that he was bored out of his mind and i can completely understand that as an eight-year-old trying to watch this movie how about you when you saw this what did you think of it
2: I was a little older at the time. I, I would have been about 12 or 13 years old. I knew I had the novelization, so I was kind of aware of the story. At the time, I mean, it was very, very slow moving. Uh, one of the things I had, it was years before I saw that uh, promotion, the the poster art. If I had been like in the video store like years later and coming across that, I would have just said, oh my God, I got to get that. And I'd been so pissed to see what the final movie was because there's nothing it's nothing at all how it's represented on, on the poster. Like I said, when I first saw it, the music, uh, for one thing, uh, I was very impressed with, and also the imagery. You can kind of tell the so the imagery that sort of like works its way through the film very much with the, the geometry of it with the circle uh, and how it starts out with the eclipse. And that's kind of circle motif kind of goes through the movie. Uh, you see it in the gut when the ants kind of destroy buildings uh you see in the symbology
0: of the circ- of the circ- the dot in the square and the montages when this when the ants finally get hubs when they're in that hole they're all coming mm-hmm. out of circular holes
2: yeah i mean there's is i just watched it several times like in preparation and just like seeing things that i hadn't noticed before like the whole geometry uh that kind of goes throughout the film but for the most part it's the insects the insect photography is pretty much That really sells the film because you really you can really believe that it really makes you believe they've got a performance out of these insects doing all these impossible things. I know uh, we're mentioning Bass, but, uh, but the guy who did the
4: photography, Ken Middleham, I think is equally as important to the success of the film. So let's talk about the plot a little bit here. So we talked, uh, you mentioned the circles at the beginning, the eclipse that we have at the beginning, and we've got Michael Murphy doing a little bit of a voiceover here. That spring, we were all watching the events in space
5: and wondering what the final effect would be. Astronomers argued over theory, while engineers got pretty excited about variables and magnetic fields. Mystics predicted earthquakes and the end of life as we knew it. When the effect came,
4: it was almost unnoticed, because it happened to such a small and insignificant form of life. Which kind of is a a little bookend, because we have that at the end as well, which originally wasn't supposed to be there, I think, in either place. We weren't supposed to have narration at the beginning or at the end, Uh, and we'll talk about that as we go along. But we don't have a human on screen for the first 10 minutes of the film and we're told store a story completely visually here about the way that science has or sorry the way that the environment has kind of changed and the ants are getting smarter and they are i mean they're they're very smart they all the different types of ants come together in this uh, kind of meeting of the, the four families, the four ant families as were, uh, are having this whole conversation amongst one another that we can't obviously understand, but we understand that they are having a conversation and the way that we're Able to tell these ants apart by their coloring, by these little symbols that are on their foreheads, which is kind of interesting. I didn't notice that the first few times that I watched it. And then we have this one ant that uh, Middleham called Greenbelly that we follow through and him going through this whole ant kingdom and finally meeting up with another ant. And we see some of the births of some of these ants. We see the, the eggs being laid. Pretty soon the ants decide, okay, well, let's take out our enemies here. So they're attacking spiders and any natural predators, and unfortunately, man is kind of on that natural predators list. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I, I
0: would argue though the movie I think intentionally leaves this part unclear. While they did attack Kendra's horse and her family, and they did kind of kill them for being on their land you kind of get the idea that they were okay with humans in general until hubs started grenading all of their apartment complexes.
4: No, I, I totally agree. I think that the ants would have been absolutely fine Coexisting with us. But yes, there's these two doctors that we're introduced to fairly early on. I mean, they're the first humans that we see Dr. Ernest D. Hubbs, who's played by Nigel Davenport, and James Lesko, who's played by Michael Murphy. And we'll hear from Michael Murphy later on in the show. Dr. Hubbs, he's really like this kind of, uh, well, he's the older, he's the father figure, definitely. And he is the guy who. Really can't abide the whole idea of how dare these ants uh, kind of are trying to uh, better themselves, as it were. There's this great place. I I always forget that it's called Paradise City. Film takes place very near this Paradise City, which is a uh, subdivision, it looks like, in the middle of nowhere that has yet to really be built. There's a couple houses there, and some of them have kind of collapsed because of these ants going in and taking down stuff. But I love the way that this city has all of these roads and all of these plots divided out. And again, we have the geometry that Robert was talking about because here we have all of these squares of these plots for all these houses that have yet to be built and all of these telephone poles and things or utility poles all throughout it. And that's kind of mirrored by these poles, these, these towers that the ants have built themselves, which are just really, again, beautifully designed. Surprise, surprise. And uh, just the way that they have these kind of great geometric shapes and like these kind of like hexagons on the top of them are really, really striking.
2: Yeah. I would say the first like 15, 20 minutes of the film, it, Fairly creepy as it unfolds, as you realize what's happening with the ants, and then when the when the human characters come in, it's a really good opening picture, and then like I guess setting up to set up this compound to do their experiments. Where the movie kind of falls down, or is sort of like I guess in my opinion is when they meet the family. Uh, that's their uh, Kendra's family. Like most of the people have gone, have evacuated, and they're. And I guess the one the one family that's left that's going to dig in, you find out that they that they've decided to stay. I think that's kind of like where it kind of gets into a little bit of the cliche, because I guess how it goes is, is that they establish the base and nothing happens. I think they're there for about over a week and there's no activity from the ants, which leads to uh, hubs destroying the towers to, to get a reaction, which they do. Uh, and that reaction is to attack the remaining family that's there, and also to uh, sabotage the the base generator.
4: Well, I can see it being cliche, but I also think that it's nice that we don't have to have an entire town or village or anybody falling to the ants. That it's just a family, and just showing that the effects that the ants have on this family. And it's also nice that Hubs and Lesko they're ensconced in their, you know, their their geodesic dome or whatever. And they're absolutely fine and safe, and they've unleashed hell onto the Eldridge family. And I have to say that when Kendra, who's played by Lynn Frederick, is out there on her horse, and the ants start attacking the horse, that to me is truly terrifying. I, I, I
0: agree, partially because I hate to see animals killed in a film. You can kill a kid, anything like that. As soon as you kill a dog or a horse, I'm I'm against you. Yeah, it, it almost seems like, like Hubbs sacrificed them to get his yeah. result. But there is a conversation later where he was actually kind of surprised they were still there. Because remember, they gave him the evacuation order. I'm not 100% sure that Hubbs knew they were still there. I think he thought they evacuated.
2: It's kind of unclear. Uh, going by the novelization, uh, there is a bit. Uh, so I'm not certain if that was – if that might have been something that got so that was cut out of the film, I have the impression it it might have been something that was cut out of the final film. But well, with Hubs, he does start it, and I I guess he does initiate it. He maybe is a little surprised, so I guess, when they go out the next morning to to find out so the aftermath. But it's very established that at some level he's really not that concerned with that they were killed. They were sort of like, well, they they weren't supposed to be here, so it's So, oh, well, which is kind of an interesting thing because Hubs is sort of set. He's sort of more intellectual and more cold and not his entire focus is on the ants and going head to head against the ants. I know we haven't really talked about Lesko, but Lesko is uh, the more emotional. He's the one who actually shows some concern for Kendra after they discover about her, her well-being and after
4: they discover that her family is dead. I'm trying to remember when they spray, because that definitely has a, a something to do with the family as well. Yeah, pure concentrated yellow. I think that's
0: maybe 20, 25 minutes into the film, because it's right after the horse gets killed and the family is mm-hmm. running. And Really, the ants don't kill the family. I mean, the, the yellow does, but it, it's just the mom of the family freaking the hell out in the car. <laughs> that actually causes their crash and strands them in the middle right. of the pure concentrated yellow. So right. it is kind of human error, really, because if she had just not freaked out, they might have escaped. And of course, they just where
2: the area where they crash is uh, just happens to be where the uh, where the base is, and they and so when they spray the insecticide, they end up getting coated with it and killing them. Which is also interesting when they find the bodies in the mo- uh, the next morning. Corpses are all very curled up, which if you've ever used insecticide yourself, you can and you see like how it curls the bugs up. It's sort of like, I guess it's kind of a dark joke in terms of like how it's worked on, I guess, the wrong
0: pest.
1: Regular use kills bugs dead for weeks,
0: for months, maybe forever. And then they even mention that's pure concentrated yellow, that that was almost like level one insecticide. Because they also mentioned that there is blue and red levels as well, but there's no point because they'll just readapt to those. So that makes you wonder Uh, just how lethal is
4: red then? The montage sequence of the ants now. So yeah, they've been uh, uh, exposed to yellow. So rather than take this lying down, they're going to adapt. And that's the thing that these insects do so well. You know, they're learning all the time. They're learning about us. They're observing us. They're learning. I think they we're still s- only
0: in phase one at this point, aren't we? Uh, Maybe I, phase two. On. They go into phase two after they have
2: met the family. And then they've been at the station for, for a while because it's in phase two when, when hubs decides to kind of get them moving in, then destroys the towers,
4: gets everything going. So, so these ants very purposefully take some of the yellow and I love this whole sequence where they will have this poison with them and they can only carry it so far until they die and they take it into their community And one of them dies, and then the next one comes and picks up that yellow and then takes that along as far as that one can go until it dies. And they again, they just keep doing this and doing this and doing this until they eventually feed it to the queen, who now is able to ingest this and produce a whole line of new ants who are resistant to the yellow. And that whole idea of, yeah, you could, I mean, it, resistance is futile, right? The, these are the Borg, basically. They are adapting to whatever the Enterprise is throwing at them. Just like, okay, yeah, we'll we'll take your poison, we'll ingest it, and we'll become stronger for it. Thank you.
0: Which I think Hubbs gives up too easily on that account when he's like, ah, there's no point with blue and red. They'll just readapt. Yeah, but maybe the blue will actually kill the queen. Maybe the red will. Hubs gives up on the poison way too quick.
4: Well, Hubs is definitely. I think Robert you said Ahab. that. Yeah. I, well, I think Robert said that. Lesko the more passionate one. Lesko more passionate, but at the same time, he's more rational, and he is much more about trying to communicate with the ants and find out what's going on with them, rather than. Yeah, you you described him perfectly. He is Ahab. Hobbs is a or sorry, Hubs is Ahab. He flies off the handle at everything, and he's the one who's just constantly fucking with these ants. And they end up, you know, they're like, oh, well, you're the guy. You're you're the one who is causing us all these problems. So eventually they decide that they've got to take him out. Note with the phases. Uh, it's almost
2: like the ants are conducting their own experiments only with the humans where they sort of isolate them. And I guess Hubs, he's aware that there is an intelligence, but he basically believes that humans are better because there's a line that he says if they can contact it and educate it. He doesn't really believe if there is and maybe if there is an intelligence, it's beneath the human or it's not as strong as the, as humans are. And he's taken out fairly early. I think uh, when Kendra destroys the ant and uh, destroys that container that the ants are, and he's bitten. Another thing when you mention Ahab, because I think he gets an ant bite and his arm kind of starts swelling up, and that also accounts for him kind of going off the handle because he's also been poisoned
4: too. Yeah, he is completely, well, he's irrational to begin with, mm-hmm. but then as the poison starts seeping into him, he just gets crazier and crazier.
0: This were a pure exploitation movie like the poster. His arm would have turned into like some big mutant thing and he would have started turning into an <laughs> ant. The 8-year-old me <laughs> kept thinking that was going to happen. <laughs> I was kind of disappointed. Like... I was kind of disappointed they went with the
4: more scientific route. Yeah. It would have been like uh District 9 or something. <laughs>
0: Yeah, might, that's exactly what I was thinking of right now is like his arm would have all, all gone District 9, but no, they don't go with that route. They stay – I would say this movie is actually, until the very ending, relatively scientifically accurate It's not the right word, but reasonable.
4: Yeah, it does feel like there's a basis and especially some of the the math that, that Lesko is using and the whole idea of him uh, trying to communicate. And I love those old uh, dot matrix type printers that are, are – printing out those maps, those very, very simplistic ASCII type maps.
0: Giant switches on all the computers (laughs) and their tape, the tapes whirring in the, it's the seventies, but still it's, it's beautiful to look at.
4: Well, speaking of the seventies, I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I mean, well, so much of this movie is trying to kind of force a family to happen. The whole idea of who's going to get the girl, who's going to be the father and the, you know, like it feels like, Like Hubs is more of the father figure, and Lesko and the girl are meant to be together as more of the husband and wife type thing. But for me, you know, this coming out in 1974, I really felt that Hubs and Lesko were really supposed to, and and obviously they do because of their age difference, but they really are supposed to represent youth culture versus the establishment kind of thing. And the way that the youth of that time were. Much more understanding and much more empathetic to everything that was going on, whereas Hubs, being the older generation, you know, just if you see a problem, you must whip it. If you see a problem, just blow it up. You know, these are the kind of people that would have sent us into Vietnam. Whereas Lesko is much more the person who would be protesting Vietnam.
0: Exactly, because there's even a part where after the initial siege has started, where Lesko is trying to communicate with the ants and Hubs kind of scoffs at him and and just defiantly throws the communication back into the printer, like, you know, how dare you? We should be trying to destroy them. He almost saw communicating with them as like a sign of weakness, and and you very much got that battle between Hubs and Lesko there, and Kendra, she just wants to go the hell home. She just wants to get out of there, so she's sort of the innocent caught in the middle, where Hubs is perfectly willing to sacrifice her for, you know, science, and Lesko... I think he wants to get with her, so he wants to save her.
4: And a lot of the complaints that happened with this movie when it first came out were talking about how unsympathetic the human characters were. And just, well, a lot of people uh, focused right on Lynn Fred- Frederick and were complaining about her performance. I don't think that she has a whole lot of stuff to work with in here, so I'm okay with what she does. And for me, the whole idea of the humans being a little bit underwritten and definitely underplayed in a lot of aspects. I mean, other than, I mean, Hubs flies off the handle all the time, especially after he gets bit. But for me, that is really to point out that difference of man and ant in this one, and that the ants are the more interesting characters in this film. And there's that great part after they come back in and they're getting kind of disinfected from the yellow where we see lesko and kendra together and they both have those great big goggles on where i'm just like wow they totally look like insects right now a little bit of foreshadowing
2: everyone kind of like bashes lynn frederick's character and i think she does an adequate job it's very confusing because in terms of the story she's she is meant to sort of be I guess, the love interest, or at least with her in Lesko. And I guess in reading about it, uh, during the making of it, there were deliberate attempts to try to downplay that, and which really didn't, I guess, just really didn't work. I think that kind of causes some confusion
4: Said so there in the story. And it feels like, too, the, the ants are the ones who are willing to try to communicate about all this stuff. They're the ones who are the most rational creatures in here and they're not driven by the emotions that are going to screw everybody up that's inside of this dome
0: i'd I'd argue the rational part because they're perfectly willing to sacrifice the praying mantises the spiders and that mouse and everything to get what they want so i think they are as obsessed with getting hubs as hubs is obsessed with getting them because look at how the other animals who have not gone through the phases we get the distinct impression that whatever cosmic event is doing this is only doing it to ants they're sacrificing other quote lesser creatures for their greater good the same as hubs is I think there's a dichotomy that they aren't better than hubs after this whole thing gets after the
4: gauntlet gets thrown down I don't know for me they're just taking out the competition you know, if you yeah. live in a world where you have X number of predators, let's just take them out. You know, it's kind of what man has done. You know, we, we made cities for ourselves, so we're not too concerned about wolves or coyotes, you know, coming through or any of this kind of stuff. And it just feels like the answer, very cool, very rational. i just saying... Well, you know we're tired of these spiders coming along and you know eating us so we're just going to take out any spider that we come along uh, you know any any creature that stands in our way we're taking them out. maybe I saw
0: a dichotomy that's not there that's a cinema snob in me sorry
4: no no <laughs> it's great I think both sides are equally valid it also gives you a sense that the answer is sympathetic the scene
2: after Lesko and hubs tried to uh, Destroy those like reflective structures that the ants have built around the base, and there's a scene when they're basically collecting their dead, and sort of like this, go down through this hallway, and there's this scene of like rows and rows of dead ants just kind of piled up, and then
4: like cuts to this, cuts to them apparently like in mourning. It totally reminded me of the um, the scene in uh, Gone with the Wind with all of the the soldiers in that one room and and Scarlett O'Hara kind of trying to tend to the the sick and the dying. You know
0: that had to have been intentional because the rows and rows and it that had to have been an homage. It had to. Have.
4: You talked about those reflective surfaces, and that was the moment in the movie where the movie had me. I was completely captivated by that moment where the ants go on the offensive against the fortress where we've got the two scientists and the girl now, and they decide, you know what? We're just going to give you guys a taste of your own medicine. And so they have these new towers with these reflective surfaces. So when the sun comes out, all of a sudden it starts to get really hot inside of what was a perfectly safe place for these guys Pretty soon the air conditioning can't take it, and next thing you know, it's just you know getting hotter and hotter in there. And I just love that the ants are fucking with these guys.
2: I said, watching it, did anyone else kind of like flashback? Is probably like revenge for like all all the kids who ever ever took the magnifying glass to to try to burn up ants.
0: Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, because you also had you also have the different interpretations between Hubs and Lesko about that. As the temperature drops, we know when the sun goes down, they have. they don't say how long but he says a few hours every night where everything works hubs thinks that they're being allowed this time to rue their fate and that the ants are kind of rubbing it in because he sees this as a battle where lesko sees it as the ants can't do anything about it once the sun goes down so that's not a we're giving them three hours of peace it's we don't have any choice. Again, the difference between we're at war and we should try to communicate.
2: And again, I think it's I guess in a long view, it's also kind of also sort of a test because also sort of a test between the two. I guess to see who is the bigger threat or who can be go on to the next to the next step. And it seems that of the two approaches, Lesko sort of re- so it takes a viewpoint. Okay, they're being so we're being allowed this time to try to find out find out more about. Uh, what's going on which she, i guess he comes that's when they send him that symbol with the dot in the circle right and so and the interpretation of what could it mean So again it kind of like in keeping with it it's i guess if you take the view that this is basically an experiment being run by the ants to kind of see like who how humans will react and, and who can be saved kendra reacts to that she thinks they want her Is it because she tried to destroy them? And I think that leads to her going outside, basically sacrificing herself. And something happens to her. You don't know what. Hubs comes to the conclusion that the queen has to be destroyed. But he's no longer in the position to where he can do it by himself. He tries to convince uh, Lesko into doing it. He refuses. And then that's when Hubs tries to go out and falls into the trap. And it's a
0: definite trap that's set for him. Yeah, the, uh, the Queen knew that, that she was the thing and that Hubs would come at her. So I loved the mm-hmm. fact that it was a trap for Hubs. But you also kind of wonder, what if Lesko had gone and right. he had fallen into the trap by accident? Would the same reaction from the Queen have happened with you know the millions of ants devouring Hubs? Would that have happened to Lesko? Because as we see later, they kind of had other plans for Lesko.
4: I think we should probably just go into the ending and let's talk about the theatrical ending let's talk about the i suppose that's the right way to say it let's talk about the one that we all saw when we rented this on vhs dvd that when we saw it on television the ending that we saw then because it's not a bad ending i know a lot of people kind of cap on this ending but i don't think it's that bad
0: it's not bad It's abrupt. It's very yeah. abrupt. Because, like, when, when you see the original ending, at least my interpretation is it got to essentially the same place. Right. But it did it much more effectively to tell the story. What took five minutes to do in the original ending and made it clear what was happening is kind of vaguely done in two minutes in this one. And you're kind of scratching your head going, like, okay, that was a little abrupt
2: they cut out more of the outrageous imagery for that and just maybe used about 30 i think it's like 30 seconds of of that which i mean it gets it across but it's just
4: very kind of you're sort of expecting more there's the whole idea i mean what we do see is the reunification of kendra and lesko and him coming into this kind of chamber and she's buried under this uh, sand or dirt or whatever and she comes up and they uh, she's got her arms out for them and they embrace and they spin around and and you get that nice kind of almost like a vertigo effect i suppose them spinning and everything and then there's a little bit yeah a little bit of montage this whole idea of like the sun kind of replacing, uh, like, being where their hearts are. So we have, again, that symbol, that circle symbolism that we've had throughout the film and everything. And then it pretty much just goes to the sunrise, kind of now is a new day. Phase four has begun.
0: The thing I got was, now, Ian didn't interpret it as reunification with Kendra, I saw that the ants, because we saw them basically take her ass down when she was yeah. stupidly wearing bare feet. <laughs> I saw that they kind of changed her, or let not as crudely as this sounds, but like, like they were puppeteering her. That like she was the next phase, ant and human combined, that that is phase four. And you kind of get that same idea with Lesko when they kind of bond, or I severely interpreted that through a stoner mentality. But that's what I, I saw in the ending.
4: I can completely see that. And and I wouldn't have one of the thoughts that I had the first time that I saw the ending was Is she now a pawn of the ants? Have they dosed her with pheromones or something? Or is she an ant now or something like that? So I even the first time around I was just like, Yeah, I was I was very suspicious of her and it could just be that, you know. She's a woman, and I'm always suspicious of them. So She's also uh, freaking 70s hot, too. To hear that they had to uh, belt out her chest to make her look more like a young girl in this film, I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: because there's just something about the way she wears her hair and even the way she talks. It's so – have you ever seen Silent Night, Bloody Night, that terrible public domain movie that Lloyd Kaufman made in the 70s with Mary Warnov? Mary Warnov is so – I mean, she's always gorgeous, but she's so 70s hot in that movie. It's a yeah. strange term, but Kendra in this is so 70s hot. I'm so, weird.
4: So that's the end of the film. We have them kind of going off into the sunrise in this case rather than the sunset, though. I've heard that if you ever see a sunrise in a movie, it's usually a sunset and then they just show it in reverse. But that could just be Jeff Murphy talking from The Quiet Earth. But and, and that's the end the original ending and apparently there were it wasn't just the original ending Uh, the more i've read about this film the more it seems like there's a lot of little things that were cut out of this thing not just a few minutes at the end so there were some other sequences some other shots where it's just like oh okay you know reading about these i'm like yeah that's not familiar to me having seen this movie five or six times now or people purposefully writing you know this was a cut scene so i'm like okay but the original of it is much more in line like we talked about those short films that uh, Saul bass has done and those are really edit heavy there's one um what's it called why we see where it's just a whole series of eyes and all this match form editing Oh, the the solar film. I mean, the solar mm-hmm. film that he did, all about solar energy. I think really paves the way for a lot of the stuff that we see in Phase Four.
0: Also, Quest, even though that's more of like a sci, an actual sci-fi thing, less of a documentary. A lot of edits to the. I mean, yes, it's what is that? Late seventies, early eighties. The really cool uh. post-Star Wars seventies effects. There's a lot of cutaways that that give quest a much larger feel than let's let's face it that really looks low budget but it feels bigger because of how it's edited
4: well he does so many good things with like forced perspectives and models and things with that one Phase four with the original ending of Phase four, he's doing so many double exposures, so much uh, messing around with the tinting of images. I mean, just and even just the way that these things are shown. I mean, we we kind of go into it the same way. The whole idea of let's go in this uh, this cave, you know. And I suppose you could you know make a vagina metaphor there if you want to. I'm not going to and those two coming together, Lesko and, and Kendra, and then them kind of starting to run off and we get waves. We get the sun, we get them all being shown at the same time. There's birds that are going directly down in the frame rather than left to right or right to left. We have these great images of these super tall structures, which, look very much like those structures that we saw the ants building and just these little people these little animated type people running across them the it's just uh so many cool things and pretty soon it it, it just everything starts to change this montage becomes so complicated and becomes this whole idea of like you know, silhouettes walking across walkways, all of these cubes that are there with the ants overlooking all of these people. And these ants are huge now in some of these shots.
0: The, ones, As, the one that freaked me out was the, the guy with the tattoos all over him wearing the goggles, which is superimposed oh, yeah. over not just an owl's eyes, but also underneath it, Lesko's eyes when he had the mask on when the ant caused him to fall and crack them. You know, implying a a three way dichotomy between the owl who was watching them earlier, Lesko relying on that face mask for protection and the ants pretty easily taking it out. And then whatever the hell, I mean, I guess the tattooed guy would be like, what if Ray Bradbury controlled evolution or something, (laughs) illustrated man or something? I, I don't know. I saw illustrated man with the tattooed guy.
4: Well, and there's like a a woman who's got writing all over her face and it says level B on it. And then they cut and it says quad. And yeah, there's like all of these things like quad 11 slash 33, sector four, all this kind of stuff. The one with the guy wearing the goggles with the big mustache kind of reminds me of Saul Bass himself, you know? And these are just like, these cuts just are coming so fast. I mean, luckily somebody recorded this because this these ending was shown a few times at at least in alamo draft house and a couple other occasions and somebody has bootlegged it and put it out onto youtube and it is really uh something that everybody needs to take a look at because it is just such a beautiful uh use of editing
0: for some reason they won't the dvd is bare bones Oh. They don't even put the trailer on the DVD, let alone we now know they have this alternate ending. I mean obviously Saul Bass is dead, but Mayo Simon – you could get Michael Murphy and people to do a great commentary. Why is this not a special edition DVD or a Blu-ray? Go All ahead. the films, it was – I think they found
2: the footage a few years ago like in 2012 and it was like rumored around whether or not they would they would actually do a special edition because they uh, they released the DVD back in – 2008 and it seems with all this new uh, with this it seems like the perfect time to said to do a special edition and like yeah olive announced the blu-ray and said it was the theatrical theatrical edition so
0: and, and it also according to olive's website at least there are no extras so no. they're bare bones no. too which makes it, me go why why not just buy the paramount edition from 2008 then it's the same i mean it, it, other than maybe a remaster it's the same dvd that because it kind of conflicted if someone hasn't has not heard about the film before or seen
2: it for the first time and get that blu ray everyone else I guess who's who's been familiar with it who probably already has the DVD there's no point. I would imagine it's that they may do a special edition but who knows when that's going to be I don't uh, it, know. Would, it would be nice if they did to also include Murphy and Simon are still around but to include a uh, basis short short films like why man creates
4: and some of that like in a package but
0: i I have a feeling those would probably be rights issues
4: things well and i think that's probably the problem with the the ending as well Mm -hmm. uh you know bass's kids are still around and i've heard that he wasn't necessarily 100 percent happy with the montage that he put together so i think that they're kind of trying to protect him a little bit because they think maybe he wasn't happy with what uh was shown shown recently shown in 2012 when they they brought back this original ending um i so but still they need to at least have that as an extra on a dvd and i would say don't buy the olive blu-ray of this because olive has got to learn that you can't release just blue you know plain jane blu-rays and dvds not you know you have to pony up and give us more than just the movie especially a movie like this that deserves some respect
0: the dvd i have is even the paramount one is the one with the crappy you know modern looking cover with just the red ant on it is even yeah. full is even full frame so maybe the olive one the only upgrade is that it's the widescreen print for once right. cuz the paramount one was full frame and i know this movie was shot widescreen the trailer indicates that there's got to be a widescreen print out there. Maybe that's what Olive is saying. Look, it's finally widescreen.
4: But Olive just drives me up a fucking wall with these bare bones releases. I mean, the, I think the only Olive disc that I own is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Why we buy DVDs, especially these days, why we buy DVDs are for the extras as much as the movie. You know, the movie is very important, but we want especially a film that I consider as important as a phase four, you know, and, and to pay somebody who I've talked about. But, you know, their legacy of the, the logos and the posters and the titles and the short films and all these things just it feels like a slap in the face that they put out this piece of junk. Blu-ray it has the movie. Great. Could be in its original aspect ratio. Great. But I want more. I want them to actually give me give me the fucking trailer at the very least, but I really want some of these extras on here. Give me a, a, a freaking audio commentary. you know. Go: The Visitor out had the
0: two street. audio commentaries. Yes. Did
4: that deserve it?: No, but it had it. Yeah, you can go crazy with some of these things, and you can yeah, you can take a, a lousy movie. I'm looking at my video shelf right now. I'm just like, okay, what's one of the lousiest movies that I see right now? You know, you can take just a a crappy, crappy movie and throw it out as a bare bones release. I'll be happy. But if you take something like this and just put it out there, finders fee, the the one uh, I think directed by Jeff Probst. I, I don't think that deserves a criterion, but I think something like this deserves a little bit more respect.
2: There was really no reason to try to to even release something like this. They could have at least worked out to have that end to have that ending because that I mean even from a historical viewpoint, that's a pretty I guess it's a pretty important thing. It's a pretty important thing to have instead of like so you might get it in like four more years and pay another thirty bucks.
4: <laughs> I have to see some of these images in here actually kind of remind me a little bit of was with like the whole idea of the man who's kind of half uh, half of his face is submerged back in the sand, and he's got the dot on his forehead. He's got a shaved head with a dot on his forehead,
0: oh, and we have ants
4: crawling out of it.
0: Not just that. Kendra. Even just in the final film, Kendra rising up out of the sand, that's a Jodorowsky image right there. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the way it's shot, it reminds me of like an El Topo or Holy Mountain right there.
4: Yeah. God, some of these things are just so crazy. Like the image of the kid who's sitting there playing, what is he, playing chess with a baboon and stuff and the the naked people that are kind of flying just by holding their arms out, and there's the that's superimposed with uh all the bird footage and stuff i mean it it's just so rich within less than five minutes worth of time what he does with this ending, and to really show like there's some crazy shit happening to go into this next phase of our evolution. It's really breathtaking. And I can't imagine being one of those people who managed to see this on the big screen. That must have just completely blown your way.
0: Whatever the cosmic event is that sets up and begins phase one, I've read some reviews that say that that is God kick-starting us. And others saying that that's natural evolution and it would have happened. So you even get a a religion versus science aspect in here, too. What actually is it that causes this?
4: Right. And I like that it's unanswered.
0: Because you don't need it. It's like Night of the Living Dead. You don't need to know why it's happening. Just, it's happening.
4: You know, there's always those weird little explanations for why it is. You know, why. It
0: was was the the Venus probe returning and the strange radiation. (laughs) That's That's a quick thing on the news, and then it's just glossed over.
4: Oh, yeah. And then in the second one, you know, when there's no more room in hell. So it's like. Who knows what it is why this is happening, and it's the same thing for this something happened, and this hap- and this is the result one of the things um somebody put together was this whole uh uh package that went along with this film, and one of the stories uh, there was a pdf of um was a paul anderson uh who the science fiction writer yeah yeah he had a story about um the earth moving out of or a kind of a inhibitor field moving brainwave. away from earth yes the the novel uh, brainwave which right came. Which that was just what was mostly affecting the humans, but it also affected a lot of mammals as well. So like the 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 farm animals realize their lot in life and it almost turns into a little bit of a, an animal farm-esque type thing. But this whole idea of people becoming better now and the struggle that they would have. But it, it was um, – to me, it was more interesting to go to – a creature who wasn't a human to go to these ants and see how this would affect them. I mean, there's just so many great questions that this movie asks.
0: Maybe I'm the only one who noticed this, but I just had happened to watch John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness a month before we record this. And remember, that starts with an unnamed cosmic event and a lining of the sun and whatnot. Maybe this was intentional, knowing Carpenter. There's even a line—remember, Lesko has a line near the beginning—that it started on such a small creature, we almost didn't notice. Right. There's a line in the John Carpenter movie about how the ants were the first things affected, and it started on a creature so small, it went unnoticed. That ah. might be a specific homage from John Carpenter to Saul Bass, or— just you know, a random cosmic events start ants. I mean, I, I saw some Prince of Darkness in here too.
2: The basic premise of it, uh, which is sort of like some event kickstarting like intelligence, and it's a pretty standard premise science fiction. Uh, there is even something that I guess a summer series this on CBS uh, called Zoo, which kind of takes the base the basic premise where like animal where the animals sort of like band together and to kind of take kind of doing what the ants did cooperating and banding against men the show's nowhere near as as good as phase four i think it's based on a james patterson it's a pretty common premise one of the things i like with phase four is that at the time that it was made uh, they allowed that, ambi- said that ambiguity and didn't answer a lot of questions and let the audience kind of like uh, decide for themselves, which, again, is kind of like kind of a side thing from 2001, which was kind of
0: you also would um, not have that today. You guys tell yeah. me if this movie were made in even the 90s, because this was a paramount film that the studio would not have insisted. No, you explain it for the people who might not get it, because right. nowadays you have to be handheld in a movie in the 70s. They didn't give a shit whether you got it or not, as long as you – we already got your ticket money. Right.
2: (laughs) If they they did a reboot of Phase 4 now, it would look a lot like that poster.
0: You know what? Because I liked that poster, I'd still probably go see that, (laughs) as long as it didn't have CG. (laughs) That's the thing. These were real ants.
4: Oh, God. You know there's no way in hell. Well, one – they would have the Humane Society or whatever the ant equivalent is or PETA you know, all over their asses because a lot of, our, a lot of ants were harmed during the making of this film. And, oh, just yeah. look at Kingdom
0: of the Spiders. Oh. oh, yeah. Look at how many real spiders were stuffed. You couldn't do that today.
4: No. No, they would be so all over it. And then it would end up looking like that, that horrible ant attack in uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So it would just – it would be shit.
0: I don't know what you're talking about. There is only three Indiana Jones films. (laughs) (laughs) There's a TV series, but there's only three films.
4: All right. We're going to take a break and play back three interviews here. The first is with writer of Phase 4, Mayo Simon. The second is with actor Michael Murphy. And the third is with the composer of the score, Brian Gascoigne. So we'll be back with those interviews after these brief messages. We are the Popcorn My name is Dustin.
3: And my name is Jessica.
4: And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married
0: couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet.
3: Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us.
0: However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast.
3: Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com.
0: Again, that's
1: www.popcornpoops.com.
5: Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booths. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good... Party cinema related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We
1: hate movies every Tuesday. Come in.
2: Please
4: leave your eyes at the door. You will not need them. This is Lord Blood Raw's nerve wracking auditorium. Ah, yes, my lords and ladies. Lord Blood Raw's nerve Racking Auditorium. The weekly podcast presenting the best (laughs) in old-time radio horror and science fiction. Hear chilling tales from such classic series as Lights Out, Suspense, X-Minus-One, The Witch's Tale, and many, many more. You can find us at drunkenzombie.com or on iTunes under the Drunken Zombie Podcasting Network. Lord Blood Raw's nerve Racking Auditorium. Where fear enters through the ear. <laughs> Where did you grow up at?
3: I grew up in Chicago. I went to the University of Chicago, and then I went to the University of Minnesota, and then I, well, I studied with uh, Robert Penn Warren, who now is sort of a cultural icon, but then was an excellent teacher, Poe novelist, and playwright. I learned what I know about writing from him. And then I um, went to uh, Iowa State, where I worked on one of the first uh, community television stations, and then down to St. Louis. I kept hanging out around the Mississippi River, you understand. And went down to St. Louis and helped start a KETC, a community television station. They were all new in those days. And uh, we created some interesting programs. Then I went to New York to climb uh, my hand with live television writing in the nineteen fifties. That was the time when live television was insanely popular, and they didn't have enough writers, if you can believe it. So an- anybody who could hold a pencil could get a, and, and who could write a forty eight minute play could get your stuff produced. And that's how I started. That's how of fellows started. I went to uh, Europe on a film project which didn't get made but uh came back to uh not to Saint Louis and not to Long Island where I had been living, but um came back to Los Angeles and about fifteen years later I finally had my furniture moved out. A typical story. I'll stay for one year, you know, and then after fifteen years you decide to stop paying to have your furniture mothballed and have it moved out to you along uh, with all the canned goods you put away when you went to Europe. And I was in Los Angeles for, uh, oh, I don't know, 25 years or so, I guess. I was a movie writer. When I was in New York, I was a live television drama writer for several years. And when that died, we all went to uh, Los Angeles, me by way of Europe. And I wrote films there, and one of which was Phase 4.
4: When you got to Los Angeles, was the uh, the Garland picture I could go on singing, was that your first screenplay? For, uh while you were out there? It was my first screenplay. Um or your first movie project, I should say?
3: You know, I I, I can't remember. I did uh I did Maroon the Big Space Picture. I was sort of a science fiction writer, but I was also a kind of a woman we'll call it a woman's writer then. Most of my work in live television was uh from a woman's point of view and I have a kind of a funny name, so a lot of people thought it was a woman. I know Phase 4 was, I think, 1974. I must have started that in '72, And I wrote Marooned in the late 60s. I started writing plays then, too. I had a play in New York in 1967, <laughs> about the time that I wrote Marooned. And I cannot remember when I was do... Oh, yeah, I think I wrote a Julia Garland film first. I think that was the early 60s. Bob Dozier, a friend of mine, had... Quit most of it, and then he got divorced, and he got unhappy, and he just didn't want to keep going and finish it off. So uh, the producers, we were all friends in those days. We all played touch football on Saturdays on the beach. They asked me to finish it, and actually, Bob, his mind had really not been on the film, so I started off and wrote a whole new film for her. I think that was around 1963 or four. That's, that's my guess. And I think I wrote a couple of others, but I cannot remember what they were. I guess not notable.
4: (laughs) I had heard that you were one of many, many people that worked on that. uh, I could go on singing. Is that true?
3: It's a rather amusing story. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see, is everybody dead who was connected with it? I guess so. Yeah. Well, the well, no, I better not. Not everyone is dead. It was a very convoluted story. They did hire some other people, and and I came back, and uh, one of the actors wrote some scenes, and yeah, it was pretty convoluted. I wrote uh, most of it, though.
4: Before you worked on Phase Four, you had worked with Saul Bass on Why Man Creates. How did you guys meet?
3: Saul called my agent uh, George Wilder, who had a lot of good writers at the agency. I guess they were friends, and he asked them for an interesting writer who was creative as well as uh, a screenwriter. And um, my agent suggested me, and I went down and talked to Saul. We hit it off very well, and I worked for close to a year on the project. That was really fun. That's the most fun I ever had working on anything with Saul. He was great fun to work with. And I used most of my University of Chicago education on that film. That was a very good time. We spent a lot of time talking, and in those days, I used to put up uh, shelf paper, around anyone's office that I worked at. I had a big red pencil, and I would sort of take notes on ideas and scribble them down on the paper. And Saul uh, used to say, just think of anything. Don't censor yourself. Just talk. Don't worry about how much it costs or how we'll do it. We'll work all that out. Let's just kind of work with ideas, which was great fun because I had a lot of ideas. And at the end of the day of working on ideas, he would say, well, that number four is interesting, and that number 17 is interesting. Why don't you see what you can do with those? And that's how we sort of put the film together. Finally, it was a film as though seven different artists had been given the job of doing a short documentary on creativity. So the film itself was sort of an encyclopedia of creativity. Each segment was as though some other writer-director had some other... Ideas about how to do a little documentary. So the film was sort of like an encyclopedia of various ways of doing a documentary, and it worked out. Um, it worked out quite well. But the first first finish of the film did not go well at a at a first viewing. It was uh, it was kind of too hot in our terms. We were very much influenced by television comedy show at the time, well, Laughing. Do you remember Laughing? started a whole new way of doing comedy. Very kind of herky-jerky, out of left field, 10-second little bits, 5-second little bits, things that didn't actually make a lot of sense but were very humorous because they were surprising, with little repeat, me, But it had a very quick, unexpected pace to it, and that's what we wanted to do with the movie. And we did it with the body of the movie, but the first sequence, the title sequence we had a sort of a countdown sequence counting down from, I don't know, 10, but with a lot of odd things happening between the numbers and in the numbers and like bombs going off and cute girls appearing. And, and it started off the film in such a fast fashion that I'm afraid it bewildered a lot of audiences. So the first couple of audiences that saw the film couldn't make any sense out of it. Um, and I thought, oh, God, we got to do the whole film over again. But Saul said, let's uh, why don't we try for a quiet opening. And, of course, we didn't have any money left either. So in a, in a half hour, we thought up uh, a way of doing an opening by having a hand write some notes in pencil on a pad of paper. And the notes were basically a, a few kind of casual thoughts on a subject. You know, this is sort of a nothing... Oh, kind of a throwaway opening. Don't expect too much out of this because we haven't thought it through yet. We're just sort of ruminating about it. We're just sort of writing down a, you know, a couple of thoughts. And um, Saul thought of using for sound the actual sound of the pencil on paper. I remember him leaning over. What does it sound like, a pencil on paper? And it was kind of interesting, that kind of scratchy sound, which he blew up. And that became the opening. No music, no narration, Oh nothing just a uh, just a pencil saying a few kind of random thoughts about this subject, and then it started out um, also in a very quiet way, like a primitive man uh, killing something for food and ending up making our object out of it, and then building a kind of a house of human civilization, which was something I learned at the University of Chicago, and we covered sort of all of human civilization like in two or three minutes. And it it kind of gathers steam and it gets more exciting and more exciting and faster and faster. And, and audiences dug that. They thought that was terrific because we started out advertising almost nothing and then very slowly it gathered steam and it was really quite a spectacular sequence. And then from then on, we used pretty much what we had already done and the audience liked it a lot. So sometimes a little change can make a big difference. Difference If you set up the audience to not to expect too much and then have them walk into this kind of jewel box, they really like it. One interesting thing about the opening, you know, directors used to have a habit of appearing in their own films like Hitchcock. You know, the, the guy gets off the bus first before the lead gets on the bus. If you, I don't know if you've ever seen Blind Man Creates, but all it is is this hand writing on this piece of paper the hand was Saul's hand, and he knew with the writing you know wonderful handwriting. It wasn't fancy, but it, it was it was wonderful. It was artistic without being artistic and that's Saul's hand and we we quickened the pace of it so it became uh smoother and sort of magical. but the changing the opening really changed the film around. It won the academy Award, won a lot of awards around the world, made a lot of money for a lot of people. It was supposed to be given away for free, but people wanted to buy it. So a company got set up. Neither Saul or I had anything to do with it and made millions of dollars selling and renting the film. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing that happens. It's never happened again to anybody. But for a while, it was the most viewed film in, in the country. Every, every I think, junior high school class saw it. Every public library carried it. And it was shown at the Museum of Modern Art a few years ago. I spoke about it and um big audience. I don't know if, they've ever, if they'd ever heard about it, but it played extremely well. It was like, I don't know, close to 50 years old, still very fresh, charming, witty, and full of creativity. So I'm really pleased with that. And after that, uh, Paul Radin, who was a friend of Saul's, who produced uh, Take Out of Africa, uh, came to Saul, and he wanted to do another film of Africa. And I think it was... Paul, who had a friend who was an ant photographer and sort of an ant wrangler, he he did little vignettes with ants and uh, said, What what can you do with this? (laughs) So, so, and I sat down and we thought, uh, 2001 was really big then. And we thought, What if we did kind of a little miniaturized version of 2001? 2001, if you remember, begins with Thus Snake Zarathustra, like a huge musical opening and the stars and the planets are all in alignment, and gigantic mysterious things are happening. So I said, let's do kind of a playoff of that, like something really small, like let's take these ants, and let's put the planets and the sun in alignment, and let's have the ants get the signal, and that starts the film. So it was a witty playoff of 2001. No one ever mentioned it. No one is is Isn't that opening shot kind of like Kubrick's opening shot? So it was—it was all for naught. But we knew what we were doing, and it was very amusing to us. And that's how it started. I cannot tell you where the story came from. I was trying to think about it the last couple of days. I absolutely dropped blank. I—I I don't. I remember the ant stuff very well. <laughs> the sort of people who saw the film. You know, the humans—they were okay, but the the ants were really interesting. And the ant wrangler did. Uh, like magical stuff. I'd write something or Saul would suggest something like a sequence with the ants, like let's have the ants pass something one to the other, and let's have it go into some kind of container, and let's have it turn into some chemistry thing to show how intelligent the ants are. So I'd write this sequence, you know, what do I know about ants, and, and the ant wrangler would make it happen. Now, mind you, there were no computers then, there was no sort of blue background. There was none of, none of these sort of effects you get out of nothing. All the stuff you saw in the film was live action. All the ant stuff was live action. I saw a movie, I guess it was two years ago, called Ant Man. Was that made movie? Science fiction movie? Uh, filled with ants. Not one of those ants was a real ant. Those all like, Composed on a computer keyboard or from some. All of our ants were real ants. And they all had different colors. Those colors were put on afterwards. The ant wrangler fed various of his ants different kinds of food, which would change the colors of their
5: abdomen.
3: So when we had the big green ants or the big brown ants or the big yellow ants, that was the ant wrangler, uh, you know. Maybe now they'd accuse us of of uh, doing something bad with ants. You know, and, uh, you know, it, it, you know. If you yeah, the pictures now of the animals, they think no animal was harmed when you're making this picture. I think we probably harmed a lot of ants, but in those days people didn't care that much. We didn't say at the end of the picture, "No ant was harmed." A lot of ants were harmed, but but no, nobody cared that much. And the ant the ant wrangler whose name has just passed out of my head was terrific he, he created those sequences out of stuff that uh Saul and i wrote and made them come alive and he had all different kinds of ants so that you could have like uh you know military ants like bigger than all the others and you could have worker ants that were smaller and he had all kinds of different ants and he even added stuff to the ants. he had little um Little ID things on the foreheads, if ants have foreheads, of some of the ants, the military ants especially. I think he had something attached to an ant. How he got it on the ant, how he stuck it on the ant's a mystery to me, to show that this was the ant general, so that when he got close to it, you could see that this ant had insignia, like he was dressed for the occasion. That was all real. That wasn't added. That was an a living ant that he prepared With this insignia, imagine how tiny it had to be. And then how do you get it on an ant that's squirming around and doing things and saying, don't don't hit me, you know, don't harm me, or I'll sue you in federal court. Um, He he got this insignia on the ant to then film the ant on its hind legs. How he got the ants on their hind legs, I'm not exactly sure. And maybe I don't want to know because I think it involved gluing the ants' back legs to something and making them stand... I don't know how he made ants stand up. He may have been harming some ants, I have to confess. But it's all real. That's the point. When he gets ants in a circle and they all stand up. Those were real ants in a real circle and he got them all to stand up. I don't know how he did because I didn't want to find out. But that's the remarkable thing about about the picture, that this is real it's happening in real time, and this guy was really, uh, when it came to ant wrangling, he stood up way above all the rest, and that's what gave the picture, I think, its uh, it's fun side that you have real ants doing all these things that make them seem incredibly intelligent.
4: Not an easy thing to do. Well, and I like that we have all these shots of these ants, and we can really tell what's happening with them, without any sort of dialogue, you know. There's a little bit of that voiceover, but that was there's the whole just like yeah.
3: The whole point. If if you look at the why man creates, there's no narration till the very end of the film. We either, we wanted to make a documentary without narration or with just only one little narrative bit at the end, but that was always what we tried to do. No narration. That's old-fashioned, silly, and too easy. So there's no narration in phase four or maybe the, the tiniest little bit. But, yeah, we wanted we wanted people to understand what the ants were doing and how wanted people to try and be as intelligent as the ants and to figure out what the ants were up to. Um, the, the end of the picture is pretty dramatic. I mean, it turns out the ants are smarter than we are. And they've been studying us just like we've been studying them. Um and then, then you come to the end of the movie. Well, we had problem previews, too. Like we had, um, it's a subtle thing about movies, but especially in science fiction movies, sometimes you try for an effect, and it's, instead of being like, oh, my God, and you freak, you laugh instead, and you think, it's stupid. Um, and we had a couple of things in the movie which made the audience laugh, it was sort of a, are you kidding me? You know, you can't do that. We had one sequence where we had the girl, the young girl in the, in the picture, who couldn't have weighed more than 100 pounds. She's on some kind of a trolley, and about a billion ants are pulling her on little ropes and pushing her and making this trolley go. And people said, no, nah, no, nah, that's, nah, that's just funny. We had that from the picture. Because the audience was just thought it was hilarious. We had a, a thing with a dagger in a hand, which the audience found too revolting. So you have to be very careful with an audience, and you never know how they're going to react until you get to them in the theater and they react. There was a famous picture called Pretty Poison, which you probably don't remember. It didn't do that much business.
4: I love that movie.
3: Well, do you remember the scene where Anthony Perkins and the girl, who was a Tuesday Weld, they go down to the river. They're going on their they're on their environmental campaign. They're going to stop the uh, the uh, factory from poisoning the river. And the watchman is there. And Anthony Perkins, I think, hits him to get him out of the way. And the girl, Tuesday Welk, the all-American cheerleader who just seems to be going around for the ride because she thinks Anthony Perkins is cute, grabs the watchman's head, pushes it underwater, and drowns him. And then, Mike, the key shot of the film, close-up of Tuesday Weld, and she's smiling. That all-American girl smiled, and you suddenly meant to realize she, the all-American girl cheerleader, is crazier than Anthony Perkins, who just got let Looney bin. Well, I was there for the first preview. Larry was a, a friend of mine. In fact, he was the uh, co uh, producer of one of the films I did. He was the co-producer of the Judy Garland film, Larry Terman who well, I think runs USC's film program now, the audience cheered that shot. They, they, not only did they laugh at it, but it made them angry. They hewed at it. They shouted at the screen. Now, I've never seen such a demonstration of just anger at a film shot in my whole life. And it was just, they, could, they did not wish to believe that this girl was crazy and had murdered the old watchman. We were so invested in her as the All-American Girl cheerleader that they would not believe the truth that she was crazier than the other one. And if they could have rushed the screen and, and, with knives in their hands and ripped the screen apart, they would have. That was the reaction that that one shot got. So here's Larry Terman. I was talking to him afterwards. He said, my God, what can I do? It's the key shot of the film. I can't cut it. But we were able to cut stuff from the uh, from the act film because they were random shots, you know, something you can cut a little sequence or cut a reaction shot. This was what the film was building up to, her smiling. And he said he said, I don't think I can cut it, and audiences are gonna kill it. And it did not do a lot of business, and audiences were very sour about it. That's what made them sour about that film. We did not quite have that problem, so we were able to cut the grisly I don't know, knife in the hand with the ants crawling out or something like that and the the ant crawly carrying the 100-pound girl along Um, and it was still okay. I mean, those are two of the gristly shots in the film which we wanted to keep in but audiences said, no, that's going to over our emotional top and we're going to take revenge on you by laughing at the film and then blocking out on it emotionally. So we were able to cut those things and that's what producers do. They Shots that really annoy an audience, or or they make an audience giggle when they should be screaming, or, you know, you can't tell what audiences are going to do. They cut those things, or they redo them. But um, some films you you can't. But our film was one where we actually cut a couple of shots. But then the very end of the film, Warner Brothers cut. I mean, not uh, Paramount. Paramount the whole end of the film. They didn't like it. They may have shown it to some preview audience that didn't like it. The whole end of the film was the reason Saul had made the film. It's this six or seven minute sequence of what's going to happen to these humans who get uh, abducted into ant world and how the genetically human beings are now going to change and uh, that nature's creatures are now going to change. And instead of us being in charge of nature's creatures, we're just going to be one more they just locked the ending off of the film, and it was um, like a six or seven minute ending. And it was the reason my Saw made the film, and I had I had nothing to do with the ending. Son and I worked very closely on everything. But the ending, he said, "No, no I'll, I'll I'll take care of that. I'll show it to you when I'm finished." And he created this really really interesting, mysterious ending about what's going to happen in the future when when nature takes over the planet with the ants in the lead and human beings are just going to be one more species. And it was filled with wonderful, mysterious scenes that really made you think and think, wow, that's really interesting. And Paramount just lopped it off. Maybe they showed it to some audience that didn't understand it. Who knows? But um, they cut it, and instead they put in like a 30-second ending with a stupid narration, and people ask me, did you write that narration? No, well, I can't remember. I, I always say, I hope not, because it was really a dumbass piece of narration. But that's what happens in films sometimes. You, The thing you love best about it is the thing that somebody upstairs just cuts. And that narration was rediscovered, I think, in 2012, and was shown at Los Angeles Art Museum, I think, in 2013. And when they sent me the film, I did not even have a copy of the film. at so the Academy was asking me about the uh, about the ending, and I said I don't even have a copy of it. They sent me a copy of the film with this new ending, a uh, separate so I can so when the film comes to that stupid ending, we can stop it and put in the real ending. I don't know if anyone has actually put the ending on the film, but if you buy it, I think you can get the ending. You know, close your eyes don't look at this one. Look at this one it's it's the It's the ending that really made the film and really elevated it out of the science horror genre into something else. And the ending was kind of our way of going back to the Kubrick film, which ends with this giant psychedelic chase approaching you know, Jupiter, and then this very mysterious uh, sitting in a Rococo dining room with the astronaut eating delicious food. Um, and then the baby appearing with his little uh, space suit on. Uh, all very mysterious. And this was Saul's way of kind of finishing off his little homage to Kubrick, which he started with the beginning of the film, and this was at the end of the film. And no one ever noticed that either. Sometimes you're so clever and nobody notices. But if you see the film, see it with the old ending, and you can actually get the old ending now. And that, that lifts the film... Out of the genre, and then when people say, "What's Saul Bass doing making this science horror film?" When you see the ending, then you say, "Oh yeah, that's that's really interesting, isn't it?" Because it was it was filled with just wonderful things, and he made the film on such a tight budget that he made it for practically nothing.
4: Were you around during the shooting of the film?
3: I was not. Saul did not want me around. It, he didn't want me looking over his shoulder. I'm, I'm, I'm very vocal when it comes to uh, what I like and don't like. And he had never directed a, a film. He just didn't want me kind of looking rueful after a scene. But what happened was he would come back to the States. He was in Kenya with Paul Radin um, shooting the film. And he'd come back with like 99 questions. What shall I do here? What shall I do there? How do I deal with this? How do I make the audience understand that? Like literally it was 100 questions in the middle of the film, he took off a couple of days, and I would say, try this, do that, or we have a little discussion end up with something. So I was sort of involved in it, but he, he, he didn't want me to see it. Uh, but, uh, when I was, in, uh, I was in England doing something or other, and he and Paul Radin came with the first cut of the film, and that's what I saw and started to make comments, and they started to make changes. So I was involved until the end, but the actual days of shooting, he he just didn't want anybody looking over his shoulder because Paul Radin was there looking over his shoulder. And, you know, it was on such a tight budget that if you fell behind, you know, $100 in a day, Paul would get very nervous because this, Saul had directed, you know, three minute title sequences and he had done My Man Creates, which was very successful, but that was a collection of little sequences which he knew. Really, how to handle. But this was a whole dramatic film, and that's a whole different story. Because, for one thing, it cannot sit there and make take after take. You can't do that because you'll fall behind, and then you won't have the time or the money for the big things. One of the important things a director learns how to do is how to spend money wisely, time and money. People are going to think about that when they look at a film. But any film, whether it's cheap and expensive, it's always an exercise in the wise use of time and money. Willie Wyler made a film called, and the, uh, there's a war sequence. The uh, Southern Army comes to, in the end, and Gary Cooper killed to fight to protect his and family, or will he be Quaker, you know, and, and let it all happen, even though terrible things are, are going on. Um, what is the name of that uh, film? Well, anyway, there, there are two interesting sequences in that film. One is a military sequence of a little battle, it's the only battle in the film. Wilder let his assistant do that. Gave him two days to do the thing and said, go do it. He wasn't really interested in it. On the other hand, there's a little sequence in the film where a, um, a soldier in the cavalry is going to ride off to battle, and the last thing he does is kiss the young Quaker girl. And it's very startling because Quakers don't generally touch each other, and they're very formal, and rather innocent from our point of view. So this kiss is like a very big deal. This is, will you wait for me and marry me when I come back, kiss. And the girl is just stunned by it, and then she rides off, and she walks back into the house, and Wyler, who's wonderful at arranging scenes, letting the camera just observe and revealing various things naturally in scenes, the, we see the girl who's like demented with pleasure and her mother and father, Gary Cooper, and the other the woman, his wife, don't notice her. And she walks up the steps in this very dreamy fashion and goes into her room and throws herself down on the bed. And she's now lying face upon the bed and notices that a little picture on the wall behind the bed is slightly crooked. And she raises her hand up and straightens the picture. A very neat kind of Quaker move, Wallace spent more time on that sequence of the girl going into her room, lying down on the bed, seeing upside down the picture slightly askew and straightening it out. He spent more time on that than they spent on the battle scene, and when reviews came out of the picture, that's what the viewers noticed and talked about that 's what audiences noticed and talked about that this girl' is so in love. Is still this neat Quaker girl and if there's something askew in the room, she will straighten it out, lying upside down in the bed. That was the scene of the picture. Wilder was a very, very wise director, he knew where to spend his time and money. And uh, Saul was a brand new director and he didn't have a feeling for that yet. And he started to go over but he started to fall behind because he was spending a lot of time going over and over scenes where it didn't make that much difference and not allowing enough time for the scenes where something did make a lot of difference. So Paul was worried about him. And they'd confer at the end of each day and, you know, were they a little behind and what Saul gonna do about it. So Saul figured he had enough of a nudge and Paul raped his friend and he didn't want a male Simon nudge, saying I don't know. So shouldn't you be taking her reaction rather than what he's doing stuff like that? So I was back in I was back in, um, I was back in uh, Hollywood, and then I was in in London. But when they finished the first rough cut of the picture, they brought it to me, and we started to work on it. And then when we finished it and brought it to Paramount, they had no idea what to do with it. And I think it was one of those situations, Mike, which happened so often then. The people who approve the project are long gone when the project finally reaches the studio. And people take the film and people say, who ordered this? (laughs) Who ordered this one made? (laughs) I remember remember reading a variety. They were were kidding the picture before it opened, talking about this picture being previewed in the homes of... uh, a famous Hollywood people. A picture where hordes of ants are attacking nobodies. And <laughs> why are we watching this? <laughs> I think I think it made its money back. I th- I think it cost three million to make, and it made its money back. But then somehow it became kind of a minor cult classic. I remember some people came to me. Uh, I don't know about ten years ago from France. They wanted to do a whole Saw Bass retrospective, and they talked about this film. And I said, "Oh well, you know, it didn't work out very well." And they said, "Oh no, on the contrary, it's now a cult classic." That's what I found out it's a cult classic. So it finally gathered a, a small appreciative audience. But at the time, people Paramount were scratching their heads saying, "Who who ordered this film?" Because somehow the ants were the heroes of the film, not not the people. But that's well, we that's what we meant it to be that way.
4: Yeah, I really like how the ants are so cooperative with one another, but yet the people just cannot get along.
3: Absolutely. Yes, it was all about ant cooperation. And that's why I would write these scenes of ant cooperation, showing, showing someone there is smart, maybe not the individual ant, but someone in there is smart. And and the ant rank would actually create the scene, make it work. And there was just dissent and mistrust among the people. Yeah. And, and that sequence that's all did at the end, it's all filled with ants are running the show, and, and people are now, they're flying with birds, so evolution will kind of end up with people flying, but they're not the masters of birds, they're just fellow creatures. That was the ecological point of the film, because I don't know if you remember during the late 60s and early 70s, that's when... American rivers were foaming with detergents and detergent and making everything ugly and awful and smelly and terrible. And detergent manufacturers were saying, well, do you want clean dishes or clean rivers? It was that offhand too bad for you. You don't like it. You know, go somewhere else. And uh, it was 1967, I believe, that the river in Cleveland caught fire. There was the feeling that everything was polluted. And that we were in the process of destroying the planet, much more so, even though now global warming you know, is a very big deal. In, in those days, the, the isolated incidents had a huge impact on people. When that river caught on fire, I mean, that was like national news. People were horrified. What are we doing to our planet? And it was soon after that that the um, Nixon administration got the laws passed. Now, the clean air laws and the clean water laws that we're living with today and some people are trying to get rid of but still that are here and our water is cleaner than it's ever been and the whole country is cleaner than it's ever been you know, all because of the horrifying things that were happening in the late 60s and that's one of the things we were thinking about as we made the picture that that we're in the middle of some kind of global meltdown and that human beings are busy like just destroying everything And we wanted to do a picture where nature comes back and takes over. And nobody ever noticed that either, Mike. I'm telling you all this stuff we thought we were doing in the movie that nobody ever noticed. But that's why we were doing the, the film, because the national uproar was greater over this river in Cleveland being on fire than over the fact that Antarctica is melting. It's just that's really how it is. So this was sort of nature's revenge on human beings. We're going to alter people. We're going to have a different kind of evolution until we turn people into just one more species. And nature is now going to take over the planet because you have failed, folks. A lot of that came from this river in Cleveland, that fire, uh, which was so just horrifying. So you never know what kind of symbol will become
4: uh, really, really
3: important. But that's all in the ending of the film, which Paramount locked off because... They were trying to save a doomed project, and they often make things worse. I remember seeing a, uh, an Italian picture, Il Leopardo. Here, I'm giving, like, a film encyclopedia lesson here. Uh, Il Leopardo, the Brent Lancaster picture, dubbed in Italian. Uh, well, it was a five-and-a-half-hour picture, and Paramount, I think it was also Paramount, they said, my God, we can't put on a five-and-a-half-hour picture. It's dull besides no one will come. So they cut it down to like two and a half hours. And it was terrible. And it was lengthy and boring. And nobody came. I happened to have the opportunity to see the five and a half hour picture. It was wonderful. It was terrific. When it was coming to an end, the other people in the audience with me were all saying, oh, it's ending so soon. Time, you know, is is funny. Five and a half hours can be like oh, my God, can't they do another five and a half hours? And sometimes, sometimes two hours, it's like you're looking at your watch after the first 10 minutes. So studios in those days had a lot of power, and um, sometimes they would cut films up and make them unrecognizable. They cut Arson Wells' films until Magnificent Ampersons, who who can look at the last half hour of that film without weeping, they cut everything out of it because of the... A little a little two-person kind of, oh, that's why I said that. Now, that's how I'm going to change. And yes, it's going to be this way. They cut the whole heart out of the last half of the picture because that thought it was too long and it was boring. Um, so, so sometimes the artists actually know what they're doing. Believe it or not, once in a while, it actually happens that way. But I but I was thrilled to hear that the, the ending had been recovered because Paramount did not try and save it. I mean, they got rid of it. And it was found somewhere in some editor's in the desk, in some editor's office. So the Academy put it back together again, and, and Museum of Modern Art had a special showing of it. And I think it plays now. I don't seem to be getting any residuals from it, but uh, I suppose I'll get you know 2 dollars 5 or $5 or something.
4: Yeah, it's coming out on Blu-ray, but I don't know if it's the restored ending. I want to say it's the original or the chopped off ending.
3: Well, I hope it's the it's the real ending because because people who were soft ass fans and he had a lot of fans. He did so many in those days. So you know, title sequences became hugely important. It was a kind of a fad, but it lasted for several years. And Saul was a master of that, and everybody knew who was doing the titles of of the picture. He was he was a title genius, and uh, people really looked forward to something that he was doing, and then this little horror film came out and people said, why didn't he do this? with the real ending, you begin to see why he did it.
4: I've had a chance to see the original ending and, and it's just the use of montage and the double exposures and just the, the animated figures running across the, the, the vistas and everything. It's just wonderful.
3: And Saul, Saul was a master of montage. He loved, in fact, you probably don't know this, but Saul used to get hired to do montage sequences in films, in big films, and get no credit, but uh, do them. A film like, uh, um, I don't know if he did the Stryzan film, the uh, the first one she did about Fanny Bryce. Um,
4: oh, was it Funny Girl or Funny Lady? Yeah,
3: there's a montage sequence in that of, of poker playing. I, I, think, I think Saul did that for a while, or, but he loved doing montages and he loved images together and contrasting images and heat he, he had double exposures and making sunsets do for sunrises. He, he was really good at that and um, really got a chance to do it. Most of Saul's work was commercial work. You probably don't even know this about him. This is going to be a chat about Saul Bass. The first thing, have you been in California?
4: It's been a long time, but yeah.
3: Well, on uh, La Cienega Boulevard... For many years, probably still, there was a restaurant called Lowry's. Uh, It was an all-roast beef restaurant. Roast beef is not that popular anymore, but it was an all-roast beef restaurant. And above the entrance was a giant, fancy L, a really interesting L. That was Saul's first commercial job, I believe, to design that L. And then he started designing uh, logos for... Companies. He did a whole bunch of them. and never really the um, AT and T, which still uses the uh, the the world with the bands around it. As though uh, astronauts taking a picture of it. Look at an AT and T truck, or look at something that AT and T sponsors, and you'll see that world. That was Saul. He did that. And United Airlines, they've abandoned his local now. When they uh, joined together with another uh, airline company. But Saul had these kind of sexy, uh, UAs. They kind of looked like, um, I don't know what they looked like. They were big U's. But the way he did lines inside of them and the way he colored them with two reds was very interesting. Kind of mysterious. It really caught your eye and you kept looking at it. Saul did that. Saul did the outsides of United Airlines planes. All the lettering for United Airlines. All their, um, their short trip airline, uh, I forget what they called it, had a logo with, a, with a, kind of an airplane and some lines and things. Saul did all that stuff. He did an awful lot of commercial uh, work. He did a big one, big A for an aluminum company. In fact, that one suggested to him that he have a Saul Bass alphabet and put a big one <laughs> of paper and, and show the letters that were still available. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> he did a lot of that, and um, that's where a lot of his designer income came from doing a very clever. Dis- oh, the uh, everyone noticed the Warner Brothers logo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's three tubes inside of a circle, two tubes the same size and one tube shorter. And if you stand back from it, the tubes turn into a W. Oh, Saul, he he, he designed that. Uh, he did a lot of commercial design work, but what he loved to do with these uh, montage sequence. He did the um he did the shower sequence in the Hitchcock film. Cycle. Yeah, he, he did the shower sequence. Hitchcock later said, Well, Saul contributed some stuff, but I really did it. But Saul told me he really did it, and I believe so he really did it. He designed it and he shot it. That was also and that's that's a montage sequence getting the feeling of a murder without actually seeing the murder having the blood circling the drain because it's black and white but still it's very effective having the rings of the shower curtain snapped off one at a time as you feel a hand is gripping it you know and, and the things snap off but that sound and the shower ring snapping that's all that's all Saul's work how he could take apart a physical sequence And then put it back together again and really make something out of it. And it's different from anything else in the movie if you notice those things. But that was was thing without showing Janet Leigh at all. Um, But just getting the the horrific idea of this this murder and the blood circling the drain at the end. What a fabulous blood and water circling the drain going in. Anyway, he did a lot of sequences for a lot of people. But this film was the only feature he ever did.
4: Did you guys ever talk about doing another movie together after that?
3: Uh, No, he, we started a documentary, but I, I couldn't, it was a documentary It didn't work out too well for company, but I was doing, I either had a play in New York. I think that was it. I think I had a play in New York and I couldn't stop that to work on the documentary. And then, um, well, I, I left, um, Hollywood, and went to New York, where I am now, about twenty-two years ago, just to write plays. And Saul died, I think, about ten years ago, from um, lymphoma. I noticed it because I got lymphoma too, but same time that he did, I think. So maybe we're doing something environmentally that we shouldn't have done. You know, you find out now you shouldn't eat that food, or you shouldn't smell that thing, or they have formaldehyde in the house or something, but no, we didn't. Uh, we didn't work uh, together after that, and I and he didn't. Um, he did this last documentary, which I just didn't make the news I think that's the last, and I think he went back to movie titles. He started working with a particular director, oh, the one who did um, Goodfellas. What's his name? Oh, Scorsese. Scorsese. Yeah. He, with his wife, who was also a very creative person, did a lot of titles for Scorsese. And then I noticed his office is gone now. He was sort of a, he had a lot of people working for him, but he, he liked to cultivate the idea that it was just him. And in many ways it was it was just him. He used to have his office by the front door. Usually the guy runs the place is is in the last office. So I was in the front office, He you always know, kept his door open. He was like, uh, like a little shopkeeper, you know, on the Lower East Side. I want to see who walks in. <laughs> Washington Irving, the famous uh, 18th century American writer, I visited his home. His office was also in the front so he could see who walked into his house. So I wanted to know who was, who was coming in, who was going out. Uh, his office, by the way, if you want tidbits, was filled with stuff from floor to ceiling, all from his various travels all cheap, nothing expensive. He loved to buy things where he liked the shape. He liked the repeating pattern. He liked the funny thing. He liked the reflection. He'd come back and put it in his office. Finally, there was hardly any room to walk around his office because he had all this stuff everywhere. And I'd come in the afternoon and we'd sit and play with all this stuff. He would have, I don't know, from the ceiling once he had this uh, long kind of sticker thing filled with little dots of Colored candy, each dot a different color. So the whole thing made kind of an interesting design. Should we eat one to see what it tasted like? (laughs) We'd play with that idea. Then then he had a little, little thing in the office, a little square thing that actually reflected the traffic in a very odd, interesting way. The cars going by the building, we watched that for a long time. But we'd pick up these little balls and things and people items and play with them. That's when we couldn't think of anything. You know, we'd kind of just kind of play with whatever's around until I'd say something to he'd say something. And I'd run to the wall and write it down on, on the shelf paper. And if we were really stuck, like, I don't know, we can't think of anything. He'd say, let's go see a foreign film and see if we can steal. And then we'd go off to the, uh, like the Korean movie house. There was a Korean movie house that showed Korean films with no subtitles. <laughs> we would just walk in and sit down and look at the film. You didn't know what was happening, but it's very interesting experience to look at a film if you're not concerned with what's happening. He'd say, oh, look at that hand. Oh, look at the, look at that hand. Look how it comes out of the sand. Oh, remember, we can use that somewhere. Wow. Oh, he'd say, ah, that bird. Look at those wings. Yeah, oh, those two birds, yeah. We, we, we can use that. There was always... Stuff that we could use somewhere, somehow. Or look at that sun setting. Oh, look at that. Look how it shimmers. Down. We'll use that somewhere. And we did all, You know every once in a while we'd actually use something that we'd see in the film. Um, just some shot or some angle or somebody being creative on film. And we'd go back, kind of refresh, them, and we'd start talking and start doing something or other I use that kind of technique when I talk writing. Writers go up and say, I'm blocked, I can't write, which is very amusing because writing is hard. And, you know, we're always blocked. We can never write. And nevertheless, we manage to get it done. But I was always tell kids, no, you're not blocked. There's always something you can do. There's always something you can do. Or you can sit there and feel that that is something. But you're never, you must never let it be in charge of you. You are in charge of it. That's the basic premise of all this. And if you're not, Writing at the moment, it means your insides as your well is filling up. When it's filled up, it'll spill over and you'll just start to write something. Don't worry about it. You're doing your job. You're doing your job. And if doing your job involves reading an old magazine or looking at the pictures or going to the movies, you are doing your job. You are connected to the work and you are in charge of it. And at the appropriate moment, your subconscious will open the gates and you'll start to work very important way of thinking so you're never, you're never stuck no such thing as being stuck there's always things that you can do creative things that will kind of keep the thing alive if you can't do anything else you can write a note to yourself about why you're having problems you can always work so we always had the principle of we're always working They looking in on us may think we're goofing off but no, we're always working and that's how we got stuff done just about kind of keeping alive and getting stimulation from these kind of stupid, silly things that were worth worth nothing and not always even that interesting. But there'd be something about a shape, or we would go someplace and have the most boring time, but so always always, there's always something interesting to be learned. So no matter what we did, we did a lot of things together. We would always found that particular instant or that shape or that thing that we could learn from. Oh, that was interesting. So there was never like we're spinning a wheel. No, we're always learning stuff, we're always putting stuff away that we will use in some way. If you notice, Saul loved the sun. He loved sunrises, which were never sunrises, they were always sunsets reversed because suns don't, suns don't rise like that. He loved horizons. That's why he loved the desert. He loved that horizon line. He loved that shape of the sun coming down into that horizon line. He liked the simplified bulks and lines in nature. He loved flight. He loved birds. He loved wings. He loved little kids running on the beach, flapping their arms like birds. He loved the kind of moments when nature becomes simplified, when it's not just stuff and it has shape. And then you introduce a human into it, chasing after the birds, and the birds take flight. And the little kid is waving his arms like he's going to take, like, those are images that Saul loved and you could see them over and over again in his work. He loved the shape of wings.
5: the beginning with him. I, I uh, The picture was set in... Uh, first of all, let me ask you, have you ever seen it?
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've well, seen it quite a few times. And um, I finally <laughs> tracked down the uh, original ending of it. Yeah. That was a big... Um, one of
5: the main reasons I did it, it was very well written. You know, like they didn't quite... Get it uh, the way they, you know, the way it was. Um, it, it, it wasn't executed quite the way it should have been. But I think by then Saul had decided he'd he'd kind of given up on it. It was interesting. He kind of he kind of ran out of gas dealing with the studio. I think at the end of the day, which I'll tell you about. But. You know I went in and talked to him, and, as you know, the thing was set for arizona this is, and we're, we, and we're in California, so of course we shoot at Nairobi i mean that was one of those. It
1: was <laughs>
5: it was during that era where they had uh, lots of uh, this particular one was called the E D plan and um so you could you know the uh, english the the british uh, the sterling uh, coin of the realm was um, was used, and they gave big big uh, kickbacks to the production companies, you know, and tax breaks, kind of like what they do in Canada today. They do that in a lot of countries, in a lot of states as well. So we um, and a guy named Paul Radin produced it, and he had done Born Free, you know, that Lion movie. He did a couple of them, I think, and they were kind of hits, and he knew his way around Africa and the Haiti plan, so by the time I got involved they were going to Africa with this thing. And it was not a bad script. Um, you know, I got on the, the plane, went to Africa, and we, which was quite an adventure in itself. But we, and then we we started working on it, and it was, um, it was. There were some dilemmas in that, you know, to my way of thinking. Anyway, uh, they they wanted no sexual innuendo between me and Lynn Frederick, you know, no kind of flirting or, not, I'm not talking anything overt, I mean, any at all, you know, it was like, and I had a feeling, I mean, there we were out in the middle of the desert in a geodesic cube or whatever the hell that thing was, and, you know, and I had a lot of dialogue with her about, uh, how are you, are you all right, and, you know, sympathetic stuff, but I had, they were always Trying to be very careful with me and with her, that we were sort of oblivious to one another it was kind of odd, you know. And so, as a result, whatever chemistry there could have been there, uh, that could have been, um, they really didn't want, you know, or they or they didn't have to exci- I mean, Saul was not really an actor's director, you know. He'd never done it before, and he didn't. I don't think he knew exactly how to lay it out, you know. Um, to my, my, I mean, I was kind of confused about it, and I just tried to, you know, I was young and I just sort of accepted it and didn't have any, you know, conversations about it like I would like I would do today. <laughs> so, and the thing about Lynn was, this is kind of an interesting little tidbit. I mean, she was very, very. Pretty and sexy, and you know she was a kind of a hot number. I mean, not long after that movie, it wasn't too terribly long. She married Peter Sellers, for God's sake, you know. But, so, and she was a kid. I mean, you know, she was a, she was a very she knew what she was doing, you know. So they were sitting on all of that kind of stuff, which made made our relationship kind of odd. After after Peter Sellers died, she then went on to marry David Frost. So you know she was. She was, you know, she was a player, (laughs) but, but, uh, anyway, we, so we kind of struggled with that a little bit. and, And, uh, and, uh, then the other thing that happened that I think several things happened that hurt the picture. Uh, there was that, the the relationships, you know, among the actors that was kind of stifled or not, not... I was from the Altman school, you know, where you really were, you were going for that immediate behavior and everything and I don't, I'd work with him more than anybody else up to that point and, you know, this was like, you know, hit your marks, lay your lines kind of stuff. It was, it wasn't about the actors, let's put it that way. You know, it was, it was about the movie, I mean, about the the look of it and the thing and we were kind of like, but the other thing was, uh, and he did. I thought he did a very, very nice job shooting it. I mean, it had a really interesting look to it, as I recall. I haven't seen it in years, but it you know, he used that long lens and all that stuff. And the, the, so, the other problem they had was it was really one of the first of ecology was beginning to rear its head, and people were starting to talk about that kind of stuff a little bit. And this was really supposed to be a kind of. Psychological film, you know, it was supposed to be a uh, oh, you know, a kind of warning, I, I guess you could say, or a cautionary tale that human beings aren't the aren't the you know at the top of the food chain necessarily, and that's what, how that all was described in the montage at the end that we didn't really shoot, you know. The I, I was sitting and having lunch with a, you know, like a. silverback ape or something and learning something (laughs) when you're having a conversation. I mean, it was all that kind of thing, and it was quite elaborate, and uh, it it never reached the screen. And the other thing was, because it was kind of a new idea and and was sort of uh, aimed at ecology, the studio didn't really know what to do with it, and so they they put it out there as a, as a horror film, you know. As a kind, there's a if, if you've ever seen the poster, there's a ant crawling out of out of a guy's hand, and I mean it's pretty, you know, in your face um, horror. And that wasn't what <laughs> wasn't what he was doing at all. So I think the audience, uh, you know, the, I don't know how many people even saw the picture, but those who did, I think were let down because uh, they, they they didn't get what they expected, you know. Uh, there was a picture called the Hellstrom Chronicle that had come out shortly before this one. And that's where they used that. I think that's what fascinated us all the most was they used that kind of time-lapse photography, you know, we um, you know how the ants were speeded up and running around and they could manipulate all that. They learned, they kind of learned how to do all that stuff. And all that was being done in California while we were shooting the the plot to the movie. See, So, um, they integrated all of that and uh, and I just think it was kind of it wasn't a horror film you know and the third problem <laughs> I said at the, at the uh, thing in Los Angeles the third problem with it was I looped the entire movie and I just and you know looping in those days wasn't very good and I hated looping I, I didn't want to do it you know but they'd all everybody gone back Home and they left me with a uh, a you know uh, a guy who a technician you know a, a looping guy in London This is where we shot out the interiors and and I, I kept saying why are we, why am I looping this I mean this is interior dialogue is anything wrong with this dialogue No it's a bit wooly you know and I think he was afraid it wasn't the loops weren't matching any other stuff or something and so as a result. You know, it's like when they looped in those days, it was like you'd be in the middle of a hailstorm and you sounded like you were in your barca lounger in your living room. You know, it was ridiculous. And so I mentioned this, and these kids all jumped on it. They went, no, no, that's what's cool about it. You sound sort of disembodied. You know, they, they, they were all kind of enamored of the fact that things weren't very slick, you know we didn't we, we didn't know how to do that stuff in those days, you know, the way we can today. So yeah, it was always uh I think they find it campy a bit, you know, and uh uh and he's he's of course greatly admired for what he's done, you know. And he's there are moments of kind of brilliant stuff in it, I think, from from what he did, you know. Uh I I mean I just I just feel that the performance is, you know, just carry the picture in any way. You know, I don't think they lived up to what they could have been. But that's neither here nor there. It was a long time ago. <laughs> you learn something from everyone you do. You know. But I had a good time, and I liked him enormously, and I liked Lynn. I liked everybody. You know, it was a it was a, it was a nice trip. But we all, uh, you know, we worked hard and uh, shot. As I say, we shot the exteriors there in Nairobi. We drive out into the Rift Valley every day, which is. God, it's like the earth just splits open and you drive down into this valley and it's it's all desert down there, you know, and um uh just extraordinary looking place. Um which I think again added to the movie. It didn't look like Arizona but it but it, it looked pretty exotic, you know. And then we and then we went to London and uh, and did the interiors, you know, where I slide down into the anthole and all
4: that stuff. The main area where you guys were, the inside of the building, was that shot in England or where was that at? Yeah,
5: the interior was, uh huh. And the exteriors, yeah, we had the exteriors. Oh, God, I, I just, it's just flash in my mind. I remember we were having to stand there with these, you know, looking at that dome and what, and oh, and you know those big towers that the ants built? We had to stand out there and look at them and everything. And they used those. Terrible big reflectors in the middle of this um, uh, African sun, you know, in the middle of the desert, and oh, nobody could keep their eyes open. It was just, a, it was just torturous. And they say, now no, no, just open your eyes now try to say those lines, and nobody could do it. You know, it was just uh, you're like burning your retina. I mean, it was insane. You know, so there were there were those, those kind of glitches and. You know, nobody said, "Well, listen, you know, let's try try it a different way, so that we don't, so we can get the scene high, You know, this guy just there <laughs> these guys are squinting, playing playing the dialogue with their eyes closed. You know, I think it had a kind of a, you know, for for the things that there were plenty of good things, I guess, but I think I think there was a certain naivete that went down in terms of filmmaking from everybody. You know, He wasn't Bob Altman at the helm. You know and yet what he was what Saul was really good at which was i mean i suppose if i'd been a color blue he would have been happier you know <laughs> but i and i feel i feel like i'm dishing here but i am cuz i like him enormously i did and i know he's a talented guy you know but he, he uh it he just didn't really, I think, come together the way it should have, you know. I think the script is better than the movie.
4: When you were talking about the uh the plan to get people over there, was you were saying the Edie plan? Is that like Edie Amin?
5: Edie, Edie. I think it was uh no, it didn't have anything with Edie
1: Amin.
5: <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it was, That would've been horrible. So I was No, they had E make- D. It was it was a, it was you know the initials for something European something or other and and I did several movies under the E.D. plan and they none of the, that was the only one in Africa usually they were in London or any place where they where they used the pound you know the British sterling you could you could do it Ireland um, you know any place any place that they had they had taken over <laughs> in their, the bygone days you could go and. Uh, Make a picture there to give you the the kickback, you know. And so it cost the budgets would come come down quite a ways. I believe at the time Robert Evans was running the studio, and uh, so by the time it got back here, I mean he kind of liked the picture, I understand. But you know, they just didn't have a clue well, we how to, and and they did they didn't uh, consult uh, they didn't consult Saul. I talked to him. Years later, about it, somebody I knew wanted to try to get it re released or something. And I said, you know, because it was released without that ending. And I said to him, you know, what about that ending? I'd never seen it, you know. And I said, Jesus, found it sounded good to me in the script. I mean, have you got a lot of great footage you're sitting on there? And he said, no, I didn't. He said, I, I don't, I, he said, I don't, I wouldn't want to see that put back on. But he said, I didn't, I didn't think the su- picture supported it or something. And that was his quote. And then. He, um, I was gonna say, what did he tell me? uh, Yeah, well, he just didn't seem very interested in it. It was like he'd, you know. uh, I feel he was let down some somewhere along the line, you know. And I think it was in in the final analysis, I think it had had to do with the studio. He didn't seem to want much to do with it, and he had such a big career going on with his commercial art and everything that you know he didn't need it. I don't know whose idea it was to get him involved in the be in the first place, but uh you know, I guess I, I, I have a hunch that people said, thought the from Chronicle and I thought, well this is the, the perfect thing for a guy like Saul because it's you know, it's all kind of storyboarded and uh you know, it's uh, the kind of thing he, he he can he can he can make something out of it, you know. These were very low budget films too.
4: Were there a lot of ants on the set?
5: There were not a lot of ants. So they brought some ants in. I had to do some stuff in London with ants, and they had jars of little small jars of ants that were um, different kinds, you know? And those bastards, those little bastards stung you. I I had to chase some of them once on a counter or something. She breaks it in a jar or does something. I can't remember, but but the ants were coming, and they trying to get some shots up, and I had to get my hands in the, in the shot. And 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 yeah, they boy, they were nasty. I never had an ant bite me. <laughs> Our ants are more more benign over here,
4: <laughs> and they
5: were pretty big too.
4: I remember them, yeah, pretty big. I guess I had to do that to get them in the shot a little bit better.
5: Oh yeah, you know they they shoot all those inserts and then they 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 never use them. You know that that happens on every picture, but that one was a. Like, I, and they, were, she, they did some stuff. Uh, he did some very tricky photography, I think, with Lynn looking at an ant and that was like right next to her eye or something. It's weird. Uh, I haven't seen it since I was a child. <laughs> well, I did. I actually went. I watched part of it. No, I couldn't sit through it. But I, I because of my own performance, nothing to do with Saul. But I. Uh, uh, when they had it out there in Hollywood that time, I watched a little of it. Then I came back at the end and talked about it. You know, so I haven't really seen the whole thing. I oh, I saw the ending too. I came back in time to see the ending. And it, yeah. So I, I do know what he did with that. Yeah. It, and it was interesting. It was just it just wasn't nearly as elaborate as it was going to be. You know. I mean, they really, they really needed to spend, you know, several weeks shooting it. If they were going to make it really right, and they didn't. You know. That was all post-production, all that stuff they did post-production. I did a couple of little, run, I run around the desert things, you know.
6: And,
4: uh, but that was it. Yeah, some of that stuff of you and Lynn actually looked animated.
5: Yeah, yeah, it was, I think.
4: Uh-huh. Yeah.
5: So, then they they just junked it, you know, at the end but I don't know. I think they had bigger fish to fry at Paramount at the time, you know. And uh, they just didn't, you know, just never really went anywhere between, I think, their, the studio's attitude about it and and the fact that uh, uh, they didn't kind of get it, you know. they they As I said, they didn't know how to release it. So it shouldn't have been, you know, a bloody hand and all that. So, yeah, that was kind of too bad. But... And I didn't know much about Saul, really. I didn't know what his, uh, you know, I, I didn't know much about. I didn't, I, in fact, I didn't even know when we were shooting that he had, you know, the, some of the stuff he had done, like, you know, painting the Universal. I mean, what do you call it—the United Airlines thing and all that. You know, I, I never. You know, I, I just, I thought he was a director, you know. It was it wasn't until later that then we we were about halfway through the picture. We started on dishing, and he. He was talking to me about how he did this and did that. He was he 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 used to do a lot of second unit stuff for Hitchcock, and so he had a little he and and I saw the storyboards, for instance, of the you know he he had it all drawn out um, where he did the shower sequence there in Psycho. And there's always been a lot of controversy about that, you know, whether he actually shot that footage or not. You know, you've probably heard it. I'm 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 not a real cinephile the way some of you guys are but but he did say to me that he shot it he said oh yeah it was just we you know it was all we brought in a body double and we just it was just blood going down a drain
4: and that kind of stuff so
5: you know he said it's got good one bother with it
4: <laughs> yeah the the montage of that is just kind of intense and it kind of seems like something that Bass would do
5: yeah yeah well he he told me that he did it. So I can attest to that. And then I read later, some, some it was in the paper. Some guy, somebody said, "No, no, I was there on some AD, said I was on the set, you know." And he didn't know why Hitchcock shot that stuff. And I think probably what happened was that you know Saul did all the the, the montage, and and maybe when uh, what's her face Lee, you know, uh, the gal Janet Lee, Janet Lee. You know, maybe Hitchcock shot her close-ups or something. You know, there were shots of her face. You know, but I think uh, I think Saul did the you know the work that that turned out really interesting, but that probably bored you know Hitchcock to
4: shoot. What was it like working with Nigel Davenport?
5: Well, we were none of us were really on the same wavelength. You know, he was—he's a big British actor. You know, <laughs> and I was trying to kind of make it real as real as I could and uh you know we it was all okay uh um he, we didn't really i don't know it, he he had his agenda and um and uh he was all right you know it was it was we never had any problems or anything i just never felt particularly um uh involved with them and yeah and yet that's probably the way it was supposed to be right he was I mean, we were kind of at odds and all of that, but, uh, you know, we just never, it just, at the end of the day, this was not a picture that where they spent much time thinking about actors, you know, but we were like sort of props in a way, uh, and I, and I, I, I guess I saw that going in. I mean, I can't say that I, again, I, I, I excuse some of it on my, on my youth, you know, because I, And the business was so different in those days, by I mean, I was, you know, as a kid, I was out there doing a lot of TV and stuff, and I was working with Bob a little bit, and and um, you know, I thought, hey, great, I'll lead in the film, you know, this is, you know, and then it all, it all kind of, then you know, the the whole nouveau thing hit, and everything changed, and it was, uh, I was right in the middle of all that upheaval, you know, um, and I did a lot of really. Interesting movies in that and during that period, you know. And I sort of think back on that one as just a little early, you know. I kind of caught the tail end of old Hollywood. I mean, when I got out there, I mean, one of my one of the first well, my first movie I ever did was an Elvis picture, you know. And the way and that's a good example of what I'm talking about now. And that this picture was written for james coburn you know and he couldn't do it at the last minute and so you know they put six songs into it and made an elvis movie out of it that's how the studios kind of operated you know elvis owed him a few pictures and so they did it you know and uh i remember doing a picture with kim novak but then but that one was robert aldrich you know so it had a really interesting kind of gothic thing to it and he was he was really an independent filmmaker you know working for the studios but he called all the shots you know so that was my my first well aside from Altman who even when he was in television was very rebellious um, uh, Bob was my first kind of all, all Bob Aldrich was kind of mainline director who was making I mean I don't mean mainline but guy who was making big pictures for the studios and still doing them with a kind of independent manner I mean I remember a time you know in, in those days you know you, you would drive in and park your car at the, uh, and then get out and walk onto the set you know and then they were trying to get the, the, the big shots at MGM were trying to get the actors the people who were making the movie to these movies to park in some parking structure and get shuttled over and you know and uh, because they wanted to sit around and have their cars there and, you know, whatever they do in there with those offices, you know. And, and Aldridge said, uh, if, if my people don't drive in, uh, I'm not making the movie. You know, he was that kind of democratic guy. He says, these are the people that are making the movie, and I'm not going to have them, you know, schlepping all over the, the, uh, the lot to get to work, you know. I mean, it doesn't sound like much now, but it was in those days, you know. It was a kind of a... It was a kind of disrespectful thing for him and for the people that he had hired, you know. Now, you talk about Saul, the great thing, uh, one of the great things about that movie, we were so far from Hollywood, nobody had anything to say about anything, you know. It was just, you know, he made the picture the way he he wanted to make it. And uh, I don't ever remember, there might have been conflict. I just never was terribly close to anybody on that show, you know. It was funny. We were all over there kind of got to know her a little bit I didn't get to know Nigel really at all he was there with his girlfriend and you know he just sort of would do his bit and disappear and go on a safari or something you know he was, he was this was a trip to Africa I think for him more than anything else but you know I don't think I took it I took it very seriously but not in a different kind of way than I started taking the whole profession as I got a little older and I saw what was going on I started working with these guys who were really filmmakers you know but um so part of it, I guess, was the era still, you know. When was that picture made, Do you know? <laughs> I should know that. I don't have a clue.
4: Came out know. in 74, so you were yeah. probably over there in 73? Yeah.
1: Oh.
4: So only, yeah, 40-some yeah, 40, 40 years ago. So I don't know why you don't remember it like it wasn't yesterday.
5: <laughs> and so many people are dead, you know. that Jesus, everybody... I mean, I'm going back. A lot of these pictures are resurrecting themselves. I have to do one. I have to do an unmarried woman um, here in New York. I mean, and Jill's gone, and Alan's gone, and you know, uh, Paul mazursky has gone, and everybody is just uh, you know, just certainly in Jill's case, much too young. You know, Lynn Frederick died very young. She was only in her she was only in her 30s, I think, and got kind of crazy. Apparently, I read some about her. Yeah, it's just a shame, you know. God, and Saul was, Saul was—he wasn't sick, but he wasn't really a well guy. When I when we made the movie, I remember he had something going on where he always had a cane. He walked with a cane, and his wife was with him, and she was very solicitous of him, you know. So they, so they, they, they too, uh, unlike Altman, who you know want to go and get drunk, you know, go watch the dailies and have forty-seven drinks and have some fun, you know. These guys, everybody kind of kept to their own what they were doing. It was kind of you know he he would solid home with his wife and Paul had his wife there too I think and you know you um, would sit around we were at the Norfolk Hotel which was you know a kind of very very interesting place I I understand Robert Ruer, uh wrote Uhuru there <laughs> in the bar you know and you'd go in there at night and there would be these they used to let them have these big safaris and still you know, this days where you'd go out and shoot anything you'd get your hands on you know and these Brits would be in there covered in blood, you know <laughs> Drinking drinking gin, you know, and rifles stacked in the corner. I mean it was real it was really a, a very exotic, you know. Getting getting pissed and, you know, wiping the blood off. Yeah, it was it was very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and beautiful. Um, Joe uh, Kenyatta was running the place then, so it was kind of, you know, there was there was no not much unrest. I mean, he really kept a tight grip on it. And what they were doing that was quite interesting was, uh, you know, there were a lot of Brits living over there, um, white people mostly, and they were, in fact, exclusively, they were anybody white, and there was British, usually, you had a British passport, and they owned all the land, you know, and, um, so Kenyatta said, "Okay, well, you got to make you have to make a decision. <clears throat> you either get rid of your British passport or you leave. You know, you got to be a, a committed Afrikaner. So a lot of people left, and a lot of people were really crazy because they, you know, they were they've been some of them had been born and raised there, but they were entitled to British passport, you know, papers, and they wanted them, of course, because you know you never knew what was going to go on, you know. And in in the end, they did take over all that land they took over you know all that farmland and everything that's what, what all the fighting was about, or you know one of the one of the things the fighting was about so that that tension was in the air when I was there i remember but you know that hotel the norfolk i i believe you know white mischief a the quite very kind of interesting book. but it's it's and I think they made a movie out of it and it, it, that's where the um all that stuff was supposed to take place. I mean, it was a very kind of British place, you know, and, um, you know, I never saw anybody black in there other than waiters, you know. It's funny in those countries, the same thing in Manila. I mean, you, you if you you go to the Manila Hotel, big five-star hotel, if you're not, if you're, if you, you know, you can't, if you're Filipino, you can't get in. I mean, all the Filipinos worked there, you know, or did in those days. And they had guys with guns, you know, at the end of the hallways and stuff. It was very, um, I mean, is there anything you wanted to know about that picture that I didn't tell you? I mean, I'm just telling you kind of inside stories, really. I don't know.
4: Yeah, that was pretty much it. Just kind of wanted to know the experience of it. And, yeah. okay. you know, I mean, right. I I know once you're done with the film, you're probably not looking at, you know, box office receipts and critic reviews no. and stuff. You're off to the next picture. So that's my yeah. job to go back and look at those kind of things at the time. So You
5: know, it's interesting you bring that up because well, uh, I was most of the pictures I did in the 70s, I guess, were very, very critic-dependent, you know. And, you know, you had to worry about what Pauline Kael had to say. <clears throat> and I don't even think about that stuff anymore. You know, I don't, I never, you know, anybody, any, you know, lame brain with a computer is a film critic now. No. I mean, I hear people talk about, did you see what they said about me in Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> <It's> no. <nigh. laughs> but, you know, there's a gazillion people reviewing things in quotes nowadays. That,
4: yeah, kind of loses its impact now, doesn't it?
5: It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And the studios have learned to roll right past them, you know. They're, uh, yeah. I, I, I have another you know, Canadian script about this guy who was a film critic. They want to make this picture. Um, and he's dying and he's like, uh, you know, fuck the movies. I've, I devoted my life to the movies. a real curmudgeon. You know, he said, I, you know, and I, he, well, well, the thing about him was that, he is, that he's he's no longer um, valuable. You know, <laughs> it's that he wants to talk cinema and, they, and nobody's interested. You know, he's bitter about it. I, I, I kind of liked it. It was very Peter O'Toole. You know, I thought, that idea of, you know, who who cares nowadays? You know, who cares what Rex Reed has to say? <laughs> well, I never cared what he had to say anyway.
1: But
5: you know, some of these people, you know, Pauline, you had to worry about. He kind of made Altman's career. You know, she was uh, she got jumped all over Mash in Nashville, and uh, you know, they got those pictures off to a, to a pretty pretty big start. Because even uh, the successes that he had, yeah, you know, they, they weren't—they were controversial. They always were controversial. You know, mashed a team and get off to a real big start. Um, kind of picked up momentum, you know, and he got paid like I don't know seventy-five grand for that, and it made billions for the studio, you know, and they when they rolled out the TV show and everything. His kid made more money writing the lyrics to that stupid song than Bob made making the picture, and that's true. And his child was 14, and he made a million bucks. They had to buy him out when they when they uh, when they um, you know made a television show out of it. They didn't use the lyrics, but but they had to pay had him off. Shit. So you know, let me know if there's anything you want to know. I'm, I'm 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 around. I'm going to be doing. I I do this stuff for
4: PBS. I'm going to be in town all month, all of June, doing it. So. Uh, Well, yeah, I would definitely love to talk to you about another film or two in the future. This has been a real pleasure.
5: Well, great. I've enjoyed it. Uh,
4: Anytime, you know.
5: Keep my number. Talk to you soon. Bye.
4: when it comes to electronic music how did you kind of get interested in that and what was really your first exposure to it?
6: Well it was um, a very interesting studio run by uh, um, the German emigre refugee called Ernest Burke Um, and he had a studio with uh, oscillators and ring modulators and um, filters and six Revox two track machines and he um, recorded long long loops on quarter inch tape which went all around the studio on coat hangers. Um, and then we added live stuff with the oscillators and the rest of the stuff on top of it. And um, I don't know why I got interested in it. I mean, I, I'd always loved um, Stockhausen, and I knew about come in Paris. So I, I think it was just, um, uh, I thought it was the coming thing, and I wanted to learn about it.
4: And what was kind of your first foray into that? Were you playing uh, keyboards, or what was well, kind I of that? we didn't have a keyboard. I mean, this is, uh, I think, um, I can't remember when the first keyboard synth came out, but it must have
6: been sort of 1970-ish, wasn't it? Um, so we didn't have keyboards in that studio at all. You had to tune the oscillators to the notes and then record a bit of the note and then um, uh, use the quarter-inch tape to make the melody. So there was an awful lot of um, quarter-inch editing blocks Um the bits of sticky tape sticking them together. Wow! But uh, you know, if, you, if that's all you have, um, you can make it do quite extraordinary things. You know, you record if you want a, a portamento or a glissando, um, you record it and um, stick that on into the melody where you want it. Um, it was quite fun, really.
4: What can uh, What years are we talking about here, as far as your your first foray into this? Well. I came back to London in 1968, so I suppose it was 1970. I'm just
6: looking at I was trying to work out when the ARP 2600 came out, which I see is 1971, or maybe the one I had was 1972. Um, So we certainly had um, the ARP 2600 keyboard at Kaleidophon. I think that was the only keyboard we had. The VCS3 didn't have a keyboard, which is the other main um, synth that we used.
4: How did you first get into composing for films?
6: Um, I was very lucky that a man called Andrew Sinclair, um, who I knew <clears throat> was uh, starting as a film director and asked me to um, do the, uh, the music for his first film, which was called The Breaking of Bumbo. Um, and I then went on to do several others with him. So th- th- that was how I got into it. Um, I was never very good at it, but I enjoyed it very much. He, I mean, he, he went on to make the, the, the film of the Undermilk Wood uh, with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, which was sort of high point of his directing career. And the way I got that job was absolutely wonderful. Whole Hollywood story. Six people had been asked to pitch, and the song, the the pitch was to write the song that Rosie Probert sings in the film, which is going to be sung by Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, <clears throat> at that stage, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor were sort of two biggest Hollywood stars. The one before mine on the tape, when the two of them were listening to it, the composer had sensibly got her to speak because he thought, well, she's never going to learn a song, and she's far too big and far too alcoholic to actually concentrate on this so um he has her speaking and Richard Burton said as that, that one was playing darling that's the one for you and she said what do you mean you think I can't sing and mine was the next one And by the time they would finished having the round mine
4: had come on the tape and she said I'll do this one
6: so complete fortuitous Hollywood nonsense so the way I got that
4: how did uh, phase four come about for you
6: well I can't remember um I, I had done already Andrew's film so I, I was kind of the, on, on the very lowest rung of the film composing ladder but it was really um because he wanted an electronic score there were very few electronic studios about and all were asked to pitch um but none of them actually had a sort of proper film composer in them so i think that's probably how i got it we we pitched with a whole lot of synth effects and ant noises um, um and chirrups but uh not the big Hollywood tune. I mean, we. I think uh, you know. He made it clear to us that he didn't want a conventional, massive, great um, theme theme song. He wanted effects, and there's a lot of music. I, I watched it yesterday for the first time in 30 years, and there was There's quite a lot of music in it, and that mostly we did that with you know long loops and treating the orchestra. We. One of the recurring. Uh, sequences is the sun rising and falling and we got the orchestra to play an enormous gigantic chord uh, which we ran through two VCS3 filters to make a very nice swirling effect. So we did a lot of experimenting on that film
4: because it was all very new to us. Can you tell me about some of the people that you worked with on that uh, film in the music department?
6: Well there were two other people Um, there was a man called Desmond Briscoe uh, who had started a thing called the BBC Radiophonic Workshop which was a very enlightened BBC initiative because they realized they were going to need lots of electronic effects for science fiction. And he and uh, a girl called Delia Derbyshire started that. And Delia had previously been at a studio called Kaleidophon with a chap called David Voorhees. And um, she then went off to start the Radiophonic Workshop and I moved into her spot in Kaleidophon. David was a, a real synth whiz, Uh, But Desmond Briscoe was involved because he'd been asked to pitch um, for some of the ant sound effects and he very cleverly realized that the noise of starlings in, you know, whatever they call a murmuration of starlings, a great big flock of them, all chirping, speeded up and slowed down, made a noise very like what you, I mean, ants obviously don't make a noise, so any noise that you're going to make to accompany them on film is going to be conceptual. And um, so he, he made this noise and we added to it sample and hold patterns and xylophone tremolos um, and all, again, were put through the VCS3 filters so that we could have everything from a terrifying mass of ants descending on a carcass and stripping it bare in a matter of seconds with time-lapse photography, uh, or we could have deep, dark, cavernous things by slowing it down enormously. So they were the two people involved on the electronic effects side.
4: I see Stomu Yamashita is also credited, and you had worked with him quite a bit I've before, in, correct? Yeah,
6: I've been in two of his bands. I can't remember what he did on that film. I know he's credited with the montage sequence, but I don't remember um, recording that with him, but I don't have any... My memory is absolutely terrible. He may well have been involved because um, you know when you're working with um, something, somebody on one project and somebody else on another project, there's very often some sort of cross fertilization. So I think he must have been involved, but I can't remember how. We had, I tell you what, we had done was The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is a David Bowie vehicle. And we'd done some cues for that. So it's quite possible we may have recorded a phase four cue during those sessions,
4: but I don't remember. The music in Man Who Fell to Earth is just so incredible.
6: Yeah. Um, it, it, he was a very inventive chap,
4: the you Amashda. Know, well, he
6: still is. He's still alive. Um, he, uh, he was completely fearless. I mean, He was a wonderful percussionist. And he just um, dived into everything completely uh, fearlessly, which I very much admired about him.
4: You were talking about a VCS-3 filter. Can you kind of explain to somebody who's not really into electronica that much what that kind of does?
6: Yeah, the oscillators make the noise. And with oscillators, you only have a choice of about three or four waveforms although they can be variable. So you might have a triangle wave or a sawtooth or a square wave or a pulse wave, which is a square wave which you can turn into a rectangular wave. And they get sent through a filter. And the filter can cut the top or the bottom or a notch out of the middle or a combination of those things. So that when you've got a a noise whose frequency boundaries are limited by the filter, you then got a control called Q which narrows the range of the filter and if you turn the Q up high enough you get something that sounds like feedback but it's actually the harmonic series and if you set the Q high enough and then you set the cutoff point of the filter up and down what you hear is the harmonic series and it's a very interesting effect it's still used a lot in synths nowadays uh, because all synths can do it and um, that's um that's how that works
4: can you tell me what was it like to work with Saul bass
6: well he was sweet i loved him uh, i thought he was a brilliant designer i think he wasn't a very great director of actors because watching the film yesterday the dialogue is sometimes quite wooden and quite predictable and the actors don't look as though they're convinced by it but the ant photography is incredible, and I think he was out of his depth as a film composer. He, uh, director, he'd done incredible title sequences for lots of very well-known films, all of which are brilliant. So I know how we got to work on him because he did the title sequence for a car racing film, Formula something, um, and he he'd done the title sequence of that, which I think we'd worked on. I think I'd worked on with Storm. I think that may be how I met him. Um, but I thought he was a, um, a very brilliant designer. But possibly not the greatest film director. Although I really enjoyed doing this job, and I, I, I remember we sent him all sorts of stuff that he didn't like. And in the end, I think he was—you know—he was right. Sometimes directors reject scores, and later on, you just know they're wrong. I mean, 2001 is the famous example that Alex North's score is now regularly played with that film because a lot of people prefer it to the the one that it ended up with. Do you know the story about Alex North didn't know that his score had been thrown off, and he arrived at the premiere still not knowing because um, <clears throat> Kubrick hadn't dared tell him. So he, you know, when the titles came on, he realized that it wasn't his movie. He, you can imagine what he felt like. Cause it was a huge film.
4: Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That has to be one of the, the worst snubs. I, can't, I mean, every film composer has his score thrown off a
6: film at some point in his career, but um, not... I mean, you usually go to the premiere.
4: Get a little warning before Yeah, that would help. I mean, I, I don't know whether Kubrick was just
6: an egomaniac and didn't care, or whether he was too scared, or I don't know.
4: Tell me about some of your other composing work, because you've done a lot more than just Phase 4, of course. I know a lot of people associate you with the Emerald Forest score, but you've done even more than that. Well, I did mostly wildlife
6: documentaries for TV, uh, which I really enjoyed, because I had a band with a guitarist called John Williams, which was basically two classical guitars, string quartet, ethnic flutes, marimbas, percussion, and, um, well, the string quartet was occasional, but, but and that sound, um, the first wildlife film I did was called Amati the Great Fig Tree, and I did it with that band, and I sort of take some credit for the fact that that became the lingua franca of wildlife films, um, because you, you know, the amount of times you hear marimbas and ethnic flutes and um, light percussion, and it just became—it was such a good soundscape for a natural history film. Um, so I did quite a lot of those, um, and very much enjoyed them, because you don't, you don't have to do the... Uh, I wasn't very good at the big film theme, and I was, wasn't very good at drama, but I, I loved the atmosphere, so I, I did a lot of wildlife
4: films. I really like some of the work that you did on the Dark Crystal score. Can you tell me about working on that?
6: Well, that was Trevor Jones. um, And it was Dave Lawson and me were the two synth players. And I think David Furman, maybe three synth players. Um, And Trevor was very particular um, and very precise uh, and took an an enormously long time. And of course, in those days, you had to... um, The synths were all done live with the orchestra uh, I mean you could occasionally <coughs> get a few extra tracks on the multi-track for the synths, but mostly it was all done live with the orchestra um, so um, it, in those days by the Dark Crystal I suppose it would have been Prophet 5 um, and possibly the St. Clavier by then no I don't know what date was the Dark Crystal 82 82 well then it, the, the, the um, Fairlight was out by then so the Synclavier certainly was I think Dave Lawson played the St. Clavier in Furman and I would have played. Um, well, I might have used the Fairlight on it. I, I think more likely the um, Prophet
4: Five and uh, the ARP Twenty Six Hundred. It seems to me that the way technology changed must have really affected the way that you worked and what you were able to output, and you know, just the way that um, what type of um, music you were able to create over the years.
6: Well. I, I really wish I kept a diary because having um, lived at the sharp end of the entire history of synthesizers, um, I can remember the excitement as each one came out. For example, when the Fairlight first had a thing called page R, where you could actually sequence music. But in order to write a C major chord on the first edition of the Fairlight, you had to write something like C, comma, 64 comma, which would be the velocity, um, 128 comma, which would be the duration, um, and then a semicolon, and then the same for the E, and the same for the G, and that would give you a C major chord for as long as you'd set the duration for. Um, so there were pages and pages and pages of green on black type, and so you know to proofread that and try and find a mistake. It was an absolute nightmare, but the fact was you could, actually, if you were prepared to type for long enough, sequence um, I think it was eight tracks. Um, and that was terribly exciting, especially when the first film David Knight did on it, which I think was a synthesized version of the music from Superman, possibly. Um, we wanted to use the roughly the same music for the end titles as for the main titles, uh, which we had done and recorded. And it was it very early days of computers. There was no way of backing it up. Uh, well, you could back it up into floppy disks, but I, I think they couldn't take as much of a score as we had. And in the process of transferring it from the main title to the end title, we managed to rub the whole lot out. And you can imagine that, I mean, nowadays, that would be the work of a second to restore it from the backup. But then it meant that we had to retype every single note. Well, I mean, we had the score, so we knew what the notes were. But... You know, if you think of how difficult,
4: it,
6: how complicated it was to write a C major chord, writing an entire end-title sequence was quite a substantial amount of work.
4: I never realized what work went into that kind of stuff. You know, people just kind of poo-poo electronic music, like, oh, it's just a guy with a synthesizer, and how difficult is that? But that's just, because coming from a computer background, I mean, that, that's crazy, the amount of work you had to put into just that. Uh, I'm 43. Yeah, it was the thing is you can't believe how exciting it was. And before, the only
6: way you could um, preserve anything was by putting it on tape. Uh, and if you if you were you know if you were a big studio, you'd have a master track tape recorder, so that's all right. And you could chop that up. But um, second generation and third generation analog tape isn't that great. So it was really exciting when each of these new developments came along. You know, the first drum machine or the first string synthesizer. But the first sequencer was really exciting because you could actually, um, and arpeggiators and, um, you know, that kind of thing were really exciting because you could, um, you can then preserve it and, and change it and do it differently. And, you know, just like, I mean, film cues very often use the same material. Uh, and as, as soon as you can copy something, it's much quicker to do the second cue in the same style because you may only have to change the beginning and the ending or, something in the middle I mean, uh, it's great in that way but I wish I had kept a diary um, I would have been I mean I remember taking the Fairlight manual home um, and while I practiced scales on the piano I would read it because I'm a geek and I like reading manuals Um, but it was so complicated I mean the, the number of things you just could not possibly sit down at that machine and have it make a noise for you without spending a great deal of time Whereas now, you turn the thing on, and push the button, it's it's wonderful.
4: I know once a musician, always a musician. What are you working on these days, or what kind of technology are you playing with these days?
6: Um, I've given all my analog synths to my 28-year-old, who um, is making sort of house, garage music. To my astonishment, he wanted them all. Um, I'm using soft synths in Logic, which I like very much. Um, and I'm actually not working very much. I play the piano, but uh, I'm not employed very much Um, I wrote a whole series of orchestral lollipops Um, when the orchestras decided that they wanted to widen their audience uh, the idea was to put on a Christmas concert and have orchestral arrangements of um, Santa Claus is coming to town or um, Let It Snow so I wrote um, dozens of those and about this time of year they all ring up and say we love that arrangement we want to use it again Uh, but we want it in a different key and slightly different arrangement So I do that for a couple of months at this time of year, but apart from that, not much.
4: That sounds pretty lucrative, actually.
6: Um, It's not the second time around because you can't charge them the full amount for an arrangement. They tend to only pay the half fee. So it just keeps (laughs) my hand in, but it doesn't make me any money. (laughs)
4: Right. (laughs) Well, hey, thank you so much for your time today. This has been fantastic. Well, it's been very nice talking to you. Thanks to Mr. Mayo, Mr. Murphy, and Mr. Gascoigne for taking the time to talk to us. So now getting back to phase four, you know, we mentioned that there are definitely a lot of killer ants in the world. I remember when I was in high school reading a story about killer ants that were taking over, I think it was like a, a rubber plantation in Brazil or something, and as the closest I could come to finding what that was might have been the Leninjin versus the ants story.
2: Yes, Leninjin versus the ants, which I think is pretty much the original sort of like ant man against ant story, I guess which was adapted uh
4: into the movie The Naked Jungle uh with Charlton Heston fighting the ants. And I I don't know if I've ever seen the movie or not but it definitely seems like something that i should see because to see charlton heston against anything i'm all about it damn great monkeys it's
2: it's a great picture i think out of uh the guy who did like a lot of the science fiction films of the 50s i think george george powell was a producer uh yeah but it's it's charlton
0: heston versus ants guess who wins (laughs) Heston. damn it he always wins even, even even when they're bastards and they blow it up, he still wins. One of the f- funny things about Phase 4 is if you described this movie – because I remember when I'm, when I'm trying to sell this movie to, to friends, ah. I'm like, it's about super intelligent ants that start to take over the world. Everyone rolls their eyes and you scoff. The this, this script is so smart though, but I defy you to try to find a non-snobbish way of trying to describe this movie or to sell it to somebody and not have it come across like – empire of the ants or them, you know?
4: Did you guys get a chance to see the Hellstrom Chronicles?
0: I saw that on TV as a kid, yes. Ah. And I I was just as ballyhooed as probably both of you. I couldn't find a trailer for this online, but I remember the trailer not selling this as a pseudo-documentary. I remember that they, they sold this as As an empire of the ants, as a them, as animal, you know, insects and small life forms taking over the world. They sold this as a beginning of the end. So I thought this was an exploitation film, and I was disappointed. It's actually a pretty good fake documentary.
2: I I saw this like on again television when I when I was when I was littler, and it was like great seventies doom porn. I (laughs) like said it wasn't later until I found until I found out. It's kind of like a, it's a fake documentary. Well, it won the Oscar for Best Documentary, as a matter of fact, by the guy who wrote The Wild Bunch, which was also another surprise when I started kind of getting aware
0: of who people were. And it's just like, what? Yeah, it, it's, it's categorized even on MDib as a documentary. And you yeah. go, you guys know this whole thing's made up, right? There's not one. <laughs> but I mean, OK, I, I, I guess if Alex Jones is considered a documentarian, I guess this can be a documentary. But you know what I mean.
4: There's a lot of overtones of, like, silent spring in here, this whole environmental message, and, you know, be careful, we're spring DDT, DDT everywhere, and the ants are getting stronger, the insects are getting stronger, and we have that great photography by Ken Middleham again in this one, uh, though it seems like Wayland Green shot some stuff as well, and, and it, I saw, like, four or five different DPs listed on this, or camera operators. But yeah, it's a great mixing of fact and fiction. And as soon as the guy came out and he said that he was Niels Hellstrom, I was just like, wait, but I've seen you in other things. You're not Niels Hellstrom.
0: I'm Niels Hellstrom, but I play a doctor on television.
4: Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. And as the movie gets going, yeah, it really reminded me of some of these disaster porn type things, and I was reminded a little bit of like a Faces of Death a little bit, the way that they cut from, from some of these scenes to others, and they integrate movie scenes without ever kind of paying them any mind. I mean, they have a scene from them, so I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of weird, but then they have another scene where, and it might have been from the Naco Jungle, where I'm just like, wait a second, this is totally different film stock. What's happening here? Don't try to pass this off as your own movie. But I have to say, I was riveted through most of Hellstrom's Chronicle.
0: I was just kind of, you know, I don't like bugs to begin with. Spiders creep me the fuck out. So you always get that itchy feeling. So you can only watch a movie like this for so long. Whereas like with with Phase Four, it you you know you know it's an actual movie. When something is even a pseudo documentary, it creeps you out a little bit more because something in your head's telling you, kind of real.
4: I appreciated seeing all the different types of bugs. I guess I was reminded too of things like um, animals are beautiful people. Do you remember that? Like it, kind of by the guys, gods, gods must be crazy people, and they had a whole thing about like rhino beetles and all these things so i don't know i I enjoyed watching it but it was really kind of perplexing because at one point my wife was even like is this supposed to be a documentary and i'm like yeah kind of is but it's kind of not and yeah 1971 i know that there were mockumentaries out by then but this was very interesting that it was such a blend of these things
0: Yet it's bizarre that it was sold as an exploitation film because
4: yeah. if you look at all the early reviews were
0: basically, that's not the movie the trailer gave me. So it's bizarre that they would sell it as an exploitation movie when it's really a fake documentary.
2: If like 71 was about the time when they kind of started doing like all these disaster the disaster porn, I remember re- reading about – well, much later when they're talking about Hellstrom – it was done as a straight documentary, and when they kind of looked at a cut of it, they said it didn't work. And trying to figure out how to get it, how to get it to work, I guess they came up with the idea of having this guy Hellstrom come, basically come in as this as this uh, fanatic character, and and basically that uh, they put that and it worked.
4: I have to say it was interesting to me too. You know, this was a David Wolper production. He was behind uh, Willy Wonka a little bit, and I noticed Mel Stewart was thanked in the film, and Mel Stewart was the director of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and I read that this was a double feature with Willy Wonka, which seems (laughs) really outrageous to me.
0: That seems like a really bizarre pairing, yeah?
4: Yeah, I, I can't imagine going to the show and seeing both of those at the same time. But I was saying at one point, if I was really high and watching this movie, I could get really into it.
0: I was thinking the same thing about phase four, the original ending that was made for stoners, wasn't it?
4: Uh, It totally was. Mm -hmm. Totally was. I mean, well, that's the thing, because they when we talked to Mayo Simon, he was saying that they took so much from 2001 and that whole idea of, you know, jupiter and beyond the infinite and you know the the stoners lining up to for their head trip with that scene i mean that was the end of phase four is that whole idea of that head trip types thing
0: well i think we should point out that phase four cinephiles like us might know about it And, you know, it had a VHS release. It had that shitty Paramount full-frame 2008 DVD release and the Pointless Olive one. We have to point out where most people know this movie from, and that's Mystery Science Theater 3000. And isn't it sad, Mike, whenever you find out a movie you do on Projection Booth is most famous for being on MST3K? (laughs) (laughs) You were shocked. I I remember when I – you didn't even know that, and we were talking a few weeks, you know, like a month or so ago, and I said, I'll even watch the MST3K. You were like, what?! This was a mystery science title?
4: You were shocked. Well, yeah, because when they – they rarely do good movies and that they covered that. I mean, they had so many movies to choose from and even so many killer ant movies. They could have done Empire of the Ants or The Ant Panic at Lakewood Manor, you know, but they chose Phase 4 instead. And I don't even think Phase 4 was in the public domain, so that's another reason. Oh, no, it's not.
0: no, this was during the KTMA season. During that season, they used movies that KTMA had for their syndication package. Ah. So they most likely didn't do Empire of the Ants or something for rights reasons where they are they had Phase 4. They The station at that time had the rights to it.
1: Ah, okay.
0: And they even say, I mean obviously they're playing it up as characters, that at the end when the rather abrupt ending happens, Servo says this is one of the worst movies we've ever featured on this show. I wanted to punch them. I'm like, fuck you, then. I mean, I know that was probably meant as a joke, but fuck you.
4: I got to say that I have a real hard time watching the KTMA stuff, and I think it's mostly because of J. Elvis Weinstein. Just He's so I, brutally not funny. He is so not funny, and just those jokes are so clunky, and his delivery is just so bad. He might have been part of the reasons why I never got into the cinematic Titanic, either. Because he just feels like the little brother that you kind of let tag along with you. It's just like, just let Elvis go play someplace else. Let's let the adults parody the films instead.
0: When I was watching this, I just watched the Mystery Science Theater version last night. The, the KTMA seasons were not scripted. It was the three guys, and you hear them stepping over one another and whatnot when they, both, when they all get a joke at the same time. They were essentially live riffs. You can really tell. They'll just start watching the movie, and I sometimes forget they're in the corner. Right. So I'm getting into watching the movie again, and then they pipe up, and I'm like, oh, yeah, Crow's here.
4: Different-voiced Tom Servo, or... Yeah. Tom and Crow were both different-voiced
0: back then. (laughs) Yeah, it was weird, because even crow's regular voice he did it in a really high cartoon voice for that first season so even though it's the same actor you remember from the comedy central years it's a totally different crow voice
4: so i did go back and watch empire of the ants yesterday bert i gordon Uh, who gave us so many great things that mystery science theater covered over the years i never would have seen it was that village of the giants Which is just such an amazing film. I wouldn't have seen that without Mystery Science Theater. And to see their version of The Amazing Colossal Man and stuff was fantastic. And here's Bert I. Gordon handling an H.G. Wells story, though changing it quite a bit. (laughs) I've never read the original story, so I don't know how much it was changed. Oh, very much.
2: Quite quite a bit. Yeah.
4: (laughs) Okay,
0: well, I I think more people – have not seen Empire of the Ants, but they know the Simpsons parody of it from when Homer was shot in space. Almost all of the Kent Brockman stuff is from Empire of the Ants.
4: We're just about to get our
0: first pictures from inside the spacecraft with average not Homer Simpson. And we'd like to... Ah! Ah! Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've just lost the picture, but uh, what we've seen speaks for itself. The air spacecraft has apparently been taken over, conquered, if you will, by a master race of giant space ants. It's difficult to tell from this vantage point whether they will consume the captive Earthman or merely enslave them. One thing is for certain, there is no stopping them. The ants will soon be here. And I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. I'd like to remind them that as a trusted TV personality, uh, I can be helpful in rounding up others to toil in their underground sugar caves. <laughs> like that's almost directly out of empire of the ants because of that pheromone that they use for humans to lure other humans and all that. It's like, that's all from empire of the ants people. Yeah. But yeah. yet if you ask them, if they've seen the movie, they're going to go, no. Well,
4: it's hilarious. I started watching it and poor Andrea, she got to see a whole hell of a lot of movies this weekend. And she was like, Oh, empire of the ants. Is that the one where they're like going to the Island and they're selling real estate and all this. And I'm like, Uh, not that I remember, but then as the movie starts to play out, it's exactly the way she described (laughs) it. It's Like, okay, yeah, I guess you know this one, honey. Isn't there, like, a really
0: famous, like, Liz Taylor or something, isn't she in that? It's been a long time. Joan Collins, that's it. Because I haven't seen this movie since the 90s, but I'm like, this one had a really big name in it when she was on her way down.
4: Yeah. Oh, yeah, this one, well, and it had the... Captain from Chips was in there, and, yeah, a lot of familiar faces.
0: Then you have Ants, just oh, yeah. titled Ants, which I have to admit I've never seen. But when Mike showed me the VHS box cover with the woman's cleavage all covered in Ants, I'm like, that would definitely have gotten a rental out of me. With uh, Suzanne Summers, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. Which is I, also
4: a real estate thing, because I think they're building houses at the beginning of that. Yeah, that, was, that was originally a TV movie, and I, I've not seen the... So the
2: blockbuster video, I I know I know the cover. Uh, so I wonder if that was like uh,
4: additional footage that they they had that they included. That was originally like a TV movie. Well, the the video box cover for our listeners was basically a woman hunched over, really showing off her assets that were just completely covered in ants. And you
0: she can't ran. even see her face. Literally, the box yeah. is her cleavage
4: only. Just her cleavage. Yes. And when I would go into blockbuster back before i even worked there i always saw that cover probably because it started with an a and it was just called ants even though when it was shown it was shown under the title uh it happened at uh liquid manor uh but they changed it to ants uh, not no exclamation point after it i kind of wish that there had been
0: the next
2: video was sent in by Gergen Gardner from baden baden Here, they have come across the
4: body of a tramp, which in itself is not so disturbing until it is turned over to reveal ants,
1: ants, ants.
4: Now that's an ant farm of a different color. Blockbuster being the uh, curmudgeons that they were, when they would get videotapes that had too lurid of covers, they would plaster these stickers over them and Ants was definitely a victim of that. And then you could see all the people who had tried to, like, peel the sticker. <laughs> back. So hey, the sticker I would have been one of them, shred- Mike. Oh, yeah. You and me both, buddy. Especially I was like, oh, what did they sh- wonder here? But, yeah, it, was, it wasn't like uh, peel it and see or anything. You could never really get that sticker off. Those are probably the most effective stickers that were ever made by man.
0: We got to bring up them, which I think is arguably, I said it on Radiodrome, is arguably the greatest atomic monster film of the American-made atomic atomic monster film of the 50s. Them is really such a good movie. If you just describe it as a killer ant film, you're really underselling them. Oh,
4: yeah, because it's ne-
0: way it's way more well written than a killer giant ant movie should be.
4: I remember my mom was terrified of them when she was a kid, so it had an effect uh, on generations of people i think i, I think mike you mean
0: them. <laughs> i love how the little girl says it when she's in panic ptsd mode
4: them. that's definitely one of the better ones and it's a shame that it was such a uh, an early one and then we get to the 70s and phase four 1974 beautiful beautiful film and then within a few years you get empire of the ants and ants and yeah, I would. Empire of the Ants is funny. I would recommend it. Uh, but Ants or Ant Panic at Lakewood Manor or It Happened at Lakewood Manor, however you want to call it, I can't really recommend that one. Even though it has Suzanne Somers.
0: I have a double feature DVD with Empire of the Ants and Tentacles on it. Ooh,
4: Tentacles!
0: For five bucks, that's a good double feature.
4: I can't argue that at all. I love the uh, really crappy like split screen effects that they have in empire of the ants and the screaming like the women scream in that film but the ants are screaming the whole time well, after they're while, set on fire well even when they're just like rearing up their legs and you know running around and stuff they seem to be screaming that seems to be their noise and it's just like okay enough
0: well you got to admit though for empire of the ants probably for an AIP budget yeah. the effects are quite good. The scenes of the obviously real ants superimposed over you know a dock or a building are actually really effective. <laughs> They're better than they have a right to be for an AIP film, you know?
4: Uh, you, you can definitely see the budget of the film in every frame.
0: But that's why I'm saying it should have looked crappier than it does.
4: All right, I'll grant you that. All right, and with that, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
0: This morning's detection of an unidentified radio source from deep space can neither be confirmed nor denied. Whatever it is, it ain't local. Position... I checked interferometry
5: somewhere in Lira, I think.
1: Uh, Vega? Can't be! It's only 26 light years away!
0: I want all these
5: people out of here. Your having sent this announcement all over the world may well constitute a breach
6: of national security.
0: This isn't a person-to-person call. This may be an announcement to get our attention.
6: The president's called an emergency meeting. You know those interlaced frames that we thought were noise? This says structure. I'm going to recommend to the president that we militarize this project immediately.
1: There's no reason to believe that their intentions are hostile. There's no proof
6: of that. Why don't they just speak English?
1: Mathematics is the only truly universal language. Senator. Buried within the message itself is the key to decoding it.
6: Those look like engineering schematics,
5: almost like blueprints.
1: It is our belief that the message contains instructions for building some kind of machine. A machine? It might... Turn out to be some kind of a transport.
5: Transport? The fact is, you don't know what it does. It could be anything.
1: Nobody's saying this is dangerous.
5: They're going to build it. Who gets to go? It's complicated, Ellie. Who gets to go? By
2: doing this, you're willing to risk your life. You're willing to give your life and die for this. Why?
4: That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at the cinematic adaptation of Carl Sagan's Contact. Until then, I want to thank this week's special guests, as well as my guest co-hosts, Robert Hubbard and Josh Hadley. So, Robert, what's been new in your world lately, sir?
2: Uh, I just finished two films, uh, one shot in Portland, uh, that, and that's an adaptation of a young adult book called something like summer and a crime thriller set in western kansas called goodland and now i'm just kind of recuperating and catching up on my writing i do reviews for uh, the website 366 weird movies so i'm catching up on that backlog probably getting ready to sit
4: to do that and then start looking for another set so for more projects after the new year how about you josh how is everything going at your myriad of podcasts
0: well, I've got the myriad of podcasts at 1201beyond.com, Radio Drone, What the Fuck, Lost in the Static, and whatnot. But also, I am a columnist for Fangoria Magazine, where I look at movies only available on VHS. Congratulations. And, and sure. I am a I am a writer for Delirium Magazine, the Charles Band one, as well. So Very you need to nice. check out new issues of Fangoria and Delirium, print only. They are not available online. you got to buy them, people.
4: Very cool. Congratulations.
0: Yeah, the column is called VHS, and the whole thrust is the movies you can only get on VHS.
4: You said thrust.
0: I did. (laughs) I wasn't working for Hustler when I said that. I worked for them in the past, but I wasn't working for them when I said that.
4: Well, thank you again, guys, for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to return the favor for all this free entertainment, go on over to our website, projection-boot.com. There you can find links over to our iTunes page where you can leave a review or link on over to our Patreon page where you can give us some of your hard-earned cash. It's just one more way that you can help us and the ants take over the world.
1: There's an ant crawling up your back in the nighttime an
4: ant crawling up your back in the nighttime, but you think that's okay while you're sleeping.
0: okay while you're sleeping
1: sometimes